to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 685. With me tonight, as always, is Rich Jowett, direct from the UK. Rich, how are things tonight in Europe? Yeah, very good. Thank you, Jim. We're getting very excited. We're just a few days away, literally now. It hardly seems possible, does it, that the off-season is almost over? But, I mean, these guys don't get much of a rest these days, do they? But the season is just a few days away, so... We thought we'd just jump in with a quick news bulletin and perhaps a quick prediction of what we think is going to happen this weekend. But yeah, very excited. Yep, excited here too. So if you guys are as excited as well as we are, well then why don't you go to Apple and iTunes and leave us a review for the show? Because if you leave us a review, it helps the algorithm, helps more people find us. More people find us, that means we can have more subscribers and donors to the show. And if you can subscribe or donate to the show and have the means to do so, please go to www.motopodcast.com. There are PayPal and Patreon links in the description, so they're on the left side of the webpage, so that you can uh, donate to the show as well. Yep, as Rich said, this is just a little snippet of some news that's left out there, as it's only seven days, because as a reference point, we are recording on the 27th of February, which leaves us seven days before we kick off the racing in Qatar. We decided to give you this little news show and also tack on to the back of it an interview that I did with Greg White. You guys asked me to get a hold of or try to have Greg White on the show. For those you don't know, he is the voice of Moto America and Greg's Garage TV. It's a, I really don't want to call it an interview. I want to call it a chat to be quite honest, because we went through the wide ranging things. We talked about how he got into the sport, uh, his racing career, Greg's garage, all of that stuff. Talked about Nikki Hayden for a while, Dave Despain, if you know who Dave is. If not, you'll find out in the interview uh, his thoughts on Moto America, his thoughts on Moto GP. Uh, there's some World Superbike in there. It's a pretty wild 90 minutes, and quite honestly, we could have went on for another hour, hour and a half. Um, but Greg has agreed to come back on at different times during the show, much like Gregory Haynes has said with you, Rich, that yep. drop in here and there and uh, give his perspective on what's going on. So we look forward to that as well. But let's first get through the news, and then we can get to the interview. So the first piece of big news that we have is that Peko Banyaya has re-signed with Ducati for the 23 and 24 season. I think this is a strong move by Ducati to definitely take a shot at one or two titles, maybe three titles on the trot here with Peko. Um, they seem to be the strongest package overall. Remains to be seen what Marquez can do with the Honda Although Marquez himself has said through various news outlets that he writes himself off for the victory in the first round here in Qatar. I don't know about you, but that sounds like sandbagging to me, Rich. It does rather. Yeah, I mean, I don't think this is a particularly big surprise to anybody that Ducati have moved first in terms of the big signings to get Banyai's signature in place for the next couple of years. I think everybody kind of expected that this was going to happen. I think if there's going to be a wait and see, it's going to be on the second factory Ducati seat. Clearly, there's two or three people in line potentially for that one. And obviously, Jack Miller will be one of the people in line to retain that position. But I don't think Ducati will commit themselves too early on that one. But as we've said many times, on this show Banyaya was kind of the class of the field by the end of last season wasn't he Jim so uh, and I think he kind of just about goes into this season as a, a nominal favorite although it, it's so tight it's very very hard to predict exactly who's got what and who's going to do what but probably he just shades it if he can carry that form over from the end of last year. And clearly Ducati have made a lot of progress, as they always do one season to another with technical innovations and so on. So, yeah, not a big surprise, but great for him. It means that he can just get down to business and doesn't have to worry about the complications or the distractions of contract negotiations once the season's underway. 
Agreed. Definitely a smart move by Ducati. Benyai, I think, is on the up. He's the new up-and-coming man. Quattro is sort of the man right now. Marquez is still the king. No one has basically just taken his throne away from him as of yet, but it's all going to play out in some sort of weird Shakespearean-type play format. But to have a season, you got to have racetracks, right? And we know that Mandalika actually destroyed itself in some sort of weird way. But what they are doing now there, and this is from GP1, they are now grinding and repaving the circuit from the last turn through turn five. Now, that's not what the riders wanted. They wanted uh, from, I think, seven all the way back around or whatever. There was a large port. I mean, it was, they basically wanted the whole track to be repaved is what they wanted. I guess that the area from the last turn to turn five is where the asphalt was at its worst. Some of the pictures show, you know, the typical big grinding equipment that's stripping off at least one, two inches of of asphalt or tarmac, bitumen. Take your pick on what you want to go with there. And they're racing to put that down. Now, they just started here a couple days ago with the grinding process. So figure one to two days to get all that ground. I mean, my gosh, I know how here in Ohio, when we do that, it takes us forever to build a new road. So that's like all summer. These guys are going to try to do it in less than three weeks. Because I think it's the 18th of March we're there. But yeah. uh, they're trying, and they know that they kind of screwed this one up. Uh, there's not a lot. They are doing something, at least. So hopefully the twenty, but the 23 race, they'll have everything redone and corrected, and hopefully some more of this construction will be done, and it'll be much better the next time by. I don't know how much the Indonesian government or the provincial authority in the area where the Mandalika track is situated are financially responsible or putting their hands in their pockets for all of this. But this is not obviously very good politically because uh, I'm sure that there must be quite a lot of local or national government backing for this facility. So it's a pretty embarrassing situation for the country to find itself in, really. And just as a footnote, because we were talking about this on the last show, I know, so we don't want to go over it too much, but it did emerge in a couple of things that I read and heard uh, in the intervening period since the last show that I think it was Chaz Davis came up and said you know we had the same problem or, or at least a degree of the same problem when World Superbikes were there in I think it was November last year so this shouldn't have come as a big surprise once the MotoGP crowd turned up so all around it's pretty poor I think and I mean they really got their work cut out to get this work completed in just a matter of a few weeks haven't they so it's not it doesn't really reflect very well on any of the involved parts is, and that would include Dorna as well because this track was meant to be built to a spec that presumably was agreed and up to a certain standard and it's hard to conclude that you know some corners maybe were cut or the wrong materials at least were used and we don't know quite why that was but you can kind of uh, start to make a few guesses on some of these things so all round a bit shoddy really and doesn't reflect terribly well on the sport in my opinion. Yep it's not to rub salt in a wound here Rich but it's kind of like the Silverstone debacle. Well it is yes. Things, yes. things were just done apparently things were just done wrong and you know as much as silverstone knew that there was standing water issues before the bikes came uh, from you know different car races and other events that were happening at the track during the time we had cases of world superbike showing up we had them talking about hey there's a there are issues we get to testing we have more issues with higher horsepower bikes with arguably stickier tires if you will so yeah, you're right. It doesn't look good on anybody. Uh, doesn't look good on Dorna. Doesn't look good on the people that have built the track or who were consigned to construct the track. 
I do know that it does seem that, uh, at least from the tracks that Herman Tilka has built, he is very particular about which bitumen he chooses for those tracks. And um, obviously Tilka has nothing to do with this facility, but it seems like that is the critical point is to have the correct grade of asphalt with the appropriate aggregate and whatever else is in there to get it to cure and sit and whatnot. And they just missed it. So yeah, um, I mean, at this point, all we can really hope is that they can get the work done to the satisfactory standard and the race goes ahead. Because I guess what Dorna don't want is to have to cancel that race on safety grounds, which is effectively what we're talking about here. Well, they squeak by at Coda. I'm pretty sure they'll squeak by there too. I expect so. These things normally work out in the end, but a little bit of a shame that it's such a farcical situation this close to the event actually happening. But anyway, that's the way it goes. At least they're doing some work now to try and get it put right. Yep. So we'll give him credit for trying. Next bit of news. Livio Supo is now the new Suzuki team manager after four years away from MotoGP. I did not see this one coming. I wouldn't have thought Supio Soup was coming back. It really caught me by surprise, like you. Again, I, I think when we were thinking who might ultimately take that role, I don't think his name well, certainly didn't pop into my mind once. I don't know what he's been doing since he departed. I guess it was from HRC, his last official position in the paddock, wasn't it? Because he had quite a few years, very successful years with Ducati, and then he moved across to HRC. And I guess that was a big part of the reason why ultimately Casey Stoner came across to HRC and joined up with them. So great to see him back. I mean, he's quite a character, isn't he? That, that very sort of distinctive voice. He appears physically to have changed a little bit. He looks much older now, doesn't he? Uh, he's got hair, which I think is the different thing. He always used to be very much of a shaved head kind of a guy, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Very famous for totally on a cigarette back in the day i guess he's probably given all that up now but um so yeah it'll be good to hear his voice back in the paddock again and just what suzuki needed really in terms of a guy with a lot of track record and a lot of high pedigree in terms of working in very successful championship winning organizations yep he's obviously got some kind of magic dust right yeah honda seemed to listen to what he had to say and if you can make hrc listen you're doing pretty good. Yeah. I will assume that he will use that same influence uh, sphere of problem solving to help elevate Suzuki to higher levels again this year to move them farther up the grid. It remains to be seen what else he does. But with Supo there, Alex needs to uh, step his game up. I really think that he needs to because I don't think Supo will want to have him there. There's going to be other people who are going to want that ride because it is a full factory motorcycle. Mm. So. So the boys are going to have to perform because Supo will not let them slide by or ease off the gas. I think more widely than that, the whole team needs to step up a little bit. The whiff of that team, we've said it again on previous shows, that turn up for one season, do really well, perhaps win a championship, and then they just disappear into the wilderness again for years on end. It's not exactly what happened last year, but they clearly, whether it was, and we've speculated whether David de Brivio's departure really set them back last year or not, clearly somebody like Livio Supo is intended to come in and try and replicate that strong central character who's very charismatic no doubt extremely assertive and effective in what they do I mean I don't know the ins and outs of what these people do day to day but behind the scenes they must be very very effective communicators organizers you know all of the things that are needed to really galvanize a team around a single purpose which is to win and Suzuki felt organizationally as if they lost that last year and they kind of lost their way a little bit and the clearest manifestation of that was even the likes of Joanne Mir kind of losing his mark 
I won't use the word that came into my mind, but clearly getting very frustrated at times last year with just basic organisational elements within the pit box where he would come in for a set of tyres and they weren't ready and so he'd have to go out again. So they just need to settle down, get back to basics uh, and just, we're only talking that last couple of tenths here, aren't we? And so a guy like Livio, I, I guess, is meant to come in and help them to just achieve that. And testing has suggested that Suzuki have made quite a big step forward over the winter in terms of the developments that they brought to that bike. So if they can just manage the team aspect and the organisational aspects of what they're doing a bit better, perhaps, then maybe that's just what, you know, the team, Alex and Joanne, really need to perform at the very, very highest level. And we must never forget that Joanne Mir is remorselessly consistent. So if, if they can get that bike a bit further up the grid in qualifying, which has been their really their Achilles heel, then he's going to be there or thereabouts and is a very strong challenger for the title, I would say. I agree. I think the missing ingredient for Suzuki has been high levels of consistency year in, year out. We kind of saw that a little bit with Ducati when they first came in. They had some highs, they got some lows, and they sort of leveled it out, and they're on a a gradual plane of upward trajectory. Honda's always sort of been it, sort of on an upward trajectory, and then something drastic happens to one of their riders, and they fall off. I give you the Mick Doohan incident. You know, crowd comes crashing down. Mark Marquez comes crashing back down. But yeah, the key here is consistency team building moving in one direction with a sole reason and focus of providing the best motorcycles possible so the two guys you have on them are going to be very close to the front at all times and i think supo will be able to do that in a way that uh, maybe brivio couldn't do good choice good choice yeah i think so i mean suzuki is not a big manufacturer team in MotoGP. let's be honest they are one of the smallest teams out there even though they're works and you do wonder whether the the herculean effort that they went through in what was it 2020 to win that championship there's kind of the risk is there's only one way to go from there and it's down and that's what happened whereas the best teams are able to maintain that that level of consistent performance and continual betterment of every aspect of what they do year on year certainly the hrcs have have proven that magnificently uh, over multiple seasons it's not just because of Mark Marquez in recent years. I mean, you have to have the bike, the team, everything else around it has to work to the absolute highest level. So I think somebody like Supo is probably one of those guys that's not really thinking so much about or just about this year. He's thinking about next year and the year after that and making sure that they don't drop the ball because that's what Suzuki have had a terrible habit of doing in the past. Agreed. So let's move to KTM. In an interview in Crash.net, it was stated by Pitt Buyer that it's up to KTM to keep Raul Fernandez happy and motivated and convince him that this is the place to stay. And he also said having Pedro Acosta is a luxury. Ooh, there's some words there from Pitt Buyer. Okay. So in all of this, if you're going to try to keep Raul on your bike in MotoGP, he can be at Tech 3. That's fine. All right. You have Remy alongside of him. For good. We'll see what Remy does on this bike this year. Oliveira and Bender. And the rumors are flying and swirling around Acosta. And there's got to be something to these because where there is smoke, there's fire. And these are not going away. The fact that everybody wants that boy's signature to ride MotoGP next year. Chief among them at the top of the list is HRC, who obviously will bring enough money to buy anybody out of any contract that they have. It's so where is Acosta going? Or is it Oliveira's the odd man out? Oliver on a HRC bike would be interesting as well. Just different shades of orange. I don't know where all this is going, but it seems like there's a, hmm, I don't want to say gamesmanship, but there's a, there's a little bit of, um, 
how can I put it from pet buyer? Like, oh, boasting maybe a little bit. Like, look, we have all these great riders. We can afford to lose the less great riders because we have the greatest riders kind of a thing going on. I'm like, ooh, that's a little... Big. It's a classic kind of game of chess situation, isn't it? Where you might have to give up one of your pieces in order to protect the one that's going to come under risk a little bit later on in the game, a few moves down the line. I mean, that is exactly what is going on here. I mean, we know Brad Bender's safe in the sense that he has a contract. Not the contracts can't be broken because we've seen that many times in the past. And if he has a particularly substandard year, then he must be at risk as well. But you'd have to figure that Oliveira and Gardner are really going to be the ones that have to watch over their shoulders the most because Raul. Fernandez, love him or loathe him, he has shown in testing that his form from Moto2 is likely to carry over into MotoGP. But Acosta is the big, nice problem that KTM have currently. Now, I'm sure that they will want him to do a couple of seasons in Moto2, but I think the likelihood is that, and we're going to come on to this as one of the next news items, so I won't go too far into it now, but as you just said, Jim, I mean, all of the factories are going to be seeking his signature. So KTM are going to have to do something. They're going to have to create a space. They can't put more bikes on the grid or well, it doesn't look as if that would be very easy for them to do so that inevitably means that one of the current four riders is in jeopardy unfortunately i think the man who is by this at least by this statement and at this time in this juncture is remy I, I tend to feel like remy is the guy who's really under the gun Oliveira has proven himself as a winner in moto gp on a ktm remy's a rookie we have to let that be but ktm lost a lot of pawns by throwing um like to go to HRC to ride in World Superbike. They lost another pawn in Petrucci. I mean, okay, Danilo is a great guy but age was not on his side and the young talent was coming. We've talked about it the way KTM handled it. We both think was incredibly wrong, but they are trying to figure the moves out for 2023, 2024, 2025. All of that is where they're trying to figure out what they're going to do and where did these pieces slot in? And it all depends on where anybody wants to go. Acosta seems perfectly happy inside of the KTM framework right now, but that doesn't mean he's not going to be happy somewhere else either. And uh, well, We'll talk about it now. If you look at how he did in testing at uh, Puerto Mayo on a Moto T bike, he broke the track record by like nine tenths, like yeah. almost a second faster. Okay, a little bit of that is going to be tires. I would give you, you know, Donald's probably got a little different bet tire, a little different compound. They might have been trying something a little stickier. Part of that is maybe trying finding a little more out of each engine. And you know, we obviously are on the KLX, the best chassis in Moto Two, but maybe just the kid could just flat out ride a motorcycle. Which is what I'm beginning to believe. I mean, I, I've always thought it, but I hate to say it, but it looks like he might just run off and rip off three, four victories in a row here to start the year. And he might just be as untouchable as he was early on in Moto3 in Moto2 this year. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I'm sure you've got something. Well, we suspected this was going to happen. And this is his second time out on the bike. Okay, he had a two to three day test. I think at Jerez was the first time he was out on the Moto2 bike, followed up by this three day test in Portimao and he didn't ride in every session because I was watching the live timing uh, and for cer certain sessions either the conditions weren't right or whatever but he wasn't at every single session so it's not as if he's been hammering out hundreds of laps this kid can just ride fast and I know we always say um, even in this case you have to caveat it a little bit but in Moto2 not so much because they're running spec engines so I don't think they're doing anything particularly tricky with engines yeah the tyres have come on a little bit but there are two measures really there's the track record which he broke and there's all the other people that were out testing 
team as well, and he beat all of them by quite some margin. So if that isn't the Jaws music starting to come <laughs> over the loudspeaker, I don't know what is. And it got me to thinking, and this is a question to probably to throw out to the listeners, because I'm not going to put you on the spot with this one, Jim. Has a class rookie won consecutive championships from the lightweight to the middleweight class? Has that ever happened mm. before? I'm sure somebody's bit, gone straight from 125 to 250 or whatever in the past and has won, but has it been done from the point of view of a class rookie? I don't, I don't know the answer to the question. No. It only came into my mind a little while ago, and I'm thinking this could be the first time it's ever happened. You'd be a fool not to bet on him to do it because the kid is just simply amazing. I do not know the answer to the question. I'm racking my brain. I do not think that there has ever been anybody to be a rookie and win one tw- win, you know, 125 because it was 30 years before a rookie had repeated that feat in the, the smallest class. So that right there tells me, at least in my lifetime, nobody has won the world title as a rookie in, say, one. So Moto 3 slash 125s moved to 250s and then won a championship there. So it might be the first time in history that that's been done i'm i mean i'm thinking there's only i saw off my head there's only two people i can think of that were rookies in moto gp 500s that ever showed up and won world titles kenny roberts being the first one i can think because he just showed up from america and won mm. and then the other one being mark marquez um, yeah. in 2013 I think so yeah that's a great question um, if anybody out there knows please let us know just send a email to motopod at motopodcast.com where's Harry Lloyd and all the stats uh, when, you, when you need <laughs> yeah. it he's nowhere to be found we'll have to search that one through the archives at the Dorna site and see but that is a that's a great question Rich I mean all it, anyway I mean going back to the point at hand is what do KTM do about this problem because as you say Jim if this guy even if he just wins a handful of races which looks very very likely <laughs> that that's going to happen at the very least you know will he be content to do another year in Moto2 I suspect given how good he was in Moto3 that he will want the Moto2 championship chalked onto the board so if he didn't get it this year maybe he would stay on for another year and I'm personally an advocate for at least a couple of years in each category really but clearly he had to go up for Moto3 I mean he won the championship at the first attempt so it was a bit of a no-brainer that he was going to go to Moto2 but again he's so good that you just know that HRC are likely to be the ones that are most desperate to get his signature particularly if the whole Quattararo or Jaramir scenario moving across you know if Polis Bargro has a good season which looks as if it could be the case and again we're second guessing everything here but we can only go on what we've seen so far I think if you're HRC even if Paul Espargo had a good season this year if a customer was on the market for 2023 you'd be a fool not to take him wouldn't you yeah you would uh last thing in the news here just to get to it as Fazia is because you were talking about staying in the class for a couple years Fazia stayed in Moto3 and has been in the class for several years I think this is maybe his third year in the class because Fazia mm. is fairly easily old. yeah yeah he's in his 20s I'm positive of but he set a track record at Portimao so is Moto3 going to be some sort of wild walkover that's just going to be completely Dennis Fazia whitewashed I don't think so there's too many other guys that are there on Juan Masia for one was not going to let that happen i think that maybe adrian fernandez having been now on a better ktm may show us some form you have guevara who uh, won a race there towards the end of the year has shown flashes of brilliance maybe not the consistency but we shall see what happens there i guess i'm going down that path of like the what may happen thing going on here three yeah. who knows moto three is such a toss-up Garcia, Onchu, even mm. somebody like John McPhee might start to string a few results together as he's done in the past, but he's always lacked the consistency. Uh, again, all up and down the field in all of these classes, it's so hard really.
really to come to any firm conclusion as to who's going to do the business. You just can't say. But Foggia, again, just looking at form one season to the next or to the new, you'd have to say that he goes in as the favourite just. But again, you just never know because it's just such a strong field. Yeah, I would take Foggia for the title just based on everything that has happened around him. I suspect Anju isn't necessarily at the make it or break it point in Moto3, but you have to believe that the kid has to start throwing down some consistent podiums and needs to be not necessarily world champion, but consistently to the front and trying for a world championship for him to be able to move upward. Although every spot in the KTM organization is full, as we all well know. Just to be slightly witty... Uh, and tongue-in-cheek I think most people just hope that he doesn't get another ban this year and he, he just calms himself down a little bit because I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying Anju hasn't won a race in Moto3 yet no not yet he's run at the front quite a few times but the hot-headedness tends to get the better of him so you know he's a year older hopefully he's got some other people around him and certainly being in that squad is going to help him so I think if he could win a race or two that would be a you know a great sort of setup for possibly doing a bit more of a title tilt in 2023 but anyway who knows we're going to find out a lot more in a few days time Mm. so let's look at moto 2 real quick just to see what's going on there i i'm tipping acosta for the title he just he's magical on a motorcycle he (laughs) far and away probably the most talented rider i think we've ever seen or not the most talented rider i should say but one of the elite talents that we've seen throw a leg over motorcycle marquez acosta maybe spencer uh you could throw doing in that mix stoner Mm. to some degree rossi there he's in that vein of those people so i'm going to tip him for the title from there who's going to challenge becomes the question i I think Agura, who has shown well and who really would have been rookie of the year in the class had we not been talking about Remy and Raul all the time, uh, will increase his form, be more consistent, be closer to the front. So he may be running with Pedro to some extent. Look for wins, podiums out of Agura. I think that's probably fair to say. Chantra looked pretty good, but that was one kind of a one-off thing and testing. I don't expect something much from him. Now Sam Lowe's appears to have some sort of tendency issue in his arm that's not good mm. um, you know poor Sam had a run at it in previous years don't know where that's going to go this year for him I hopefully he's going to be able to compete and be at that high level he needs to be to run at the front and challenge for the championship I think Lowe's is probably the biggest maybe the biggest challenger I'm not sure about Cam Bobier. Um, Greg White and I have a very long discussion about the Americans in Moto2 so in that interview so I don't want to take away from what's there but I do think think that cam is wiser now he's flipped the switch he's made the transition between the the wiggly wobbly superbike chassis in the soft mushy pirelli to the stiff and rigid calyx with a hard as ball bearings dunlap tire sean dylan kelly great kid fast it's just going to take him a while to figure it out and joe roberts Make or break season for Joe, I think. Yep. You got to show something. Um, we And, you know, Greg White and I have a real long talk about Joe Roberts, and he throws some insight into the situation that we don't know because he does know Joe. Uh, but I, I'm hoping that Joe and Bobier Cam will be at the front and challenging the whole season. And if so, it'll be a really good season. Yeah, I have high hopes for Cam Bobier actually. And again, we won't talk about him too much because you've obviously covered it in some detail with Greg, which we'll look forward to hearing. The other name that you have to throw into the mix as a likely contender, Augusto Fernandez. 
Mm-hmm. Who's on the other side of the Red Bull garage now? I think is he yeah. Red Bull? Mm-hmm. Yes, because yeah. he's come he's across the Park VDS. So he's a caster's teammate. He, yeah, I mean, he's going to find himself, I suspect, in the same kind of choppy waters that Jaume Masia found himself in last year in the, in the KTM uh, IO squad, which is you know the more experienced of the two and the one that's expected to do the job, and then suddenly finds they got this young whippersnapper terrier kind of tearing up the rule book and making them look a little bit second hand but again we'll see but moto 2 is just full of great riders but a, a lot of riders moved up to moto gp let's not forget so a lot of the old guard have moved on so it's a slightly fresher playing field in that sense but like you jim i'm already forming the opinion that it's worth putting a few shekels down on mr acosta for the title because he's starting to look ominous let's just say <laughs> it is looking ominous if we go to moto gp and think about what may happen per se i think it's obvious the ducatis are the best bikes i think peco is leading right now at least he's worth a few quid for world champion I think Quattraro is going to give everything that he has to try to defend his title. I just think he's going to wind up throwing it away more times than he wants to because he's going to try to make up for the deficit that the bike is. And he's made no bones about the fact that the bike is not what he wants. And there's been no development of that bike. So, oh, that leads us to like what's HRC got up their sleeves. I think we know that that bike for a brand new bike is a competitive bike. The question then is, is Mark Marquez fit enough to win a world championship? maybe if he's cunning enough i think if he decides to stay on the bike and let the ducati horde take points off each other and he simply stays in the mix then he's got a shot it all comes down to his physical fitness the the boy is so beat up that i don't know how much magic is left in that old top hat you know to do sort of the frosty the snowman kind of thing from there is like well i don't think miller has the consistency i do think martin does because martin has won world championships so i look for martin as an outside chance to really be challenging benyaya but which way does that contract flow if it's near the end of the year does martin ride in support of benyaya because he wants to actually be on the real factory team don't know where that is the ktms Oh, they could come good, right? We know that Raul is quick on the bike. I think Bender is very happy with what KTM has done as far as the development of that bike. And they're happy about that. Oliveira is a proven winner on the bike, provided they unlock the secret of the Michelin, which I think they've got their head around it this time. Mm. And then... You know, we're already down to like, what, eight guys that potentially can win this world championship at this point. And you haven't even talked about Suzuki and what they may bring to the table. I think Juan Mir is extremely happy with his motorcycle this year. It's a significant improvement over what he had last year. And as you said, he's consistent as dirt, right? He will show up week in, week out and be right there. And he doesn't crash. I mean, that's the key thing. No, he does not. He he doesn't crash. and, And I know that people say, well, duh, that's why is consistent but it's not just that it means he doesn't get injured a lot you know he's not kind of managing physical problems like so many of the riders frequently have to now that's not to say he's not going to go out and you know have a crash and you know tweak something in the first race of course it can happen but you can only go on what history tells us and he has generally been the guy that keeps it the right way up and scores solid points all the time so and let's not forget i'm ignoring mandalika as the test i mean we have to ignore tests by and large anyway but if certainly if we look at sapang which is representative because everybody's got a lot of data there you know they've ridden there a lot over the years so it is more representative in that sense the top 20 bikes were pretty much covered by one second so i mean we're talking cigarette paper kind of gap 
gaps between everybody here then it's very very hard to call now I'm going to put you on the spot a minute Jim Martin Darlington put out a thing on Twitter earlier today which I replied to and so it was who's going to win Qatar who's going to be the biggest surprise of 2022 and who's going to be the champion MotoGP so who do you think is going to win Qatar I'll I'll tell you what I said and I'll tell you what he said but you go first so who's going to win Qatar okay so I think Ben Yaya wins Qatar with the Ducati okay yeah biggest surprise of the season uh who's going to surprise the most I think Raul Fernandez will surprise the most because he's a rookie on a KTM and I think he might win one okay or at least run so far up the field that didn't suspect that they could do that. And what's the what's the last one? The last one is who will be the champion this year? Ben Yaya. Okay. So I always sort of tend to go slightly against what other people have said, but as much as you can within reason. But Martins was Qatar race winner Banyaya, same as you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I said Jorge Martin. That was a, that was I was between the two of them. Qatar's mm-hmm. a bit of a weird track. It's not a good outlier for the season as a whole. Historically, it tends to be a bit of a random result in terms of form. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's because it's run at night or quite what it is, but as I say it's not a particularly reliable guide. So I think we will know a bit more after the first say three races have happened. But anyway, for number two, who's going to surprise the most? You said Fernandez. Martin said Fernandez as well. That's weird because I haven't even seen Martin's tweet. I didn't Uh, know he tweeted that today. So 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 far, you and him are exactly on the same page. I've been a little bit contrarian. I do actually believe this. I went with Vinales. Yeah, that's probably possible. I I, I see that. I can see where your logic is in that. So, okay. Then for champion, you said Banyaya, which I think is a pretty solid shout. Interestingly, Martin said Joanne Mir. Mm. And I said Joanne Mir as well. I couldn't bring myself to say anything other, really, because I've got my Suzuki top on again. (laughs) You can't see him, but I I can. And he is dressed in his Suzuki S-Tar blue. Yes, that's it. Um, Looking quite uh, smashing, I might say. uh, But but you have to look back at 2020. Uh, You know, Mir, through consistency, you know, did the job then as well. Yes, I know Mark Marcus was injured and so on. only beat the people that you're competing against so he won and stan he won it so i think this could be the kind of season as you said where people are robbing each other of points and that's ducati i mean the, the elephant in the room that we haven't ever discussed is whether or not at an early stage of the season ducati might start to bring some team orders into play they've always said that they wouldn't do it but i just wonder whether this might be the year when they start to change tack a little bit possibly for or against team orders in this sort of scenario jim I don't like them. Mm. I, I don't like them in Formula 1. I don't like them here. There's no way to really to police it. What are you going to do to the teams? I think you have that team order thing is more prevalent in Formula 1 because of the bigger the bigger contracts. There's, you know, if, well, if you want to drive in this car again, then you're going to sit here and you're going to drive in support for the last five races of the guy who's leading the championship and blah, blah, blah. But somehow motorcyclists seem to be like more individuals and they're just going to do what they want to do. And mm. if they did do it in support, it would be blatantly obvious because you know Martin would be turning around on the front stretch and he'd be like the old wave by. It yeah. would be it would be <laughs> completely blatant that you knew that this was supposed to happen, kind of a thing. Uh, but I, what did Martin say for biggest surprise? I forgot. I didn't hear what you said. Uh, he was with Raúl Fernandez. Raúl well. Fernandez as well. Okay. Yeah, which is entirely likely that that is going to be the case because the kid is really very very good. It is very possible. Oh, so that's pretty good. So let's just throw out who we think is going to win each class in Qatar. Start with Moto3, Rich. Tell me, who do you think? Dennis Foggia. You're going with Foggia? Win the race or the championship? I'm only talking about the race. Just okay, simply yeah. the race. What's going to happen next weekend? Who's going to win? I, it's I, the outlier track. Let's just throw something out there. Yeah, I think Foggia would get my vote just in terms of carryover form at the beginning of the new season. I'm going with Garcia. Mm-hmm. So Moto2, yeah. I think I know where we're going with this one. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it seems a bit fanciful to say it, doesn't it? But I'm going to have to say, say it. it. Yeah, I'm going to say Acosta. Yeah, and so I'm are you. I'm there too, because I just <laughs> yeah. don't think anybody is going to beat the kid. Sorry, I just don't see it happening. And then the yeah. MotoGP, obviously, Bagnaia and you had Martin. I will say this. I will make this prediction. I bet that the entire podium is red Ducatis. Oof. Well, I wrote down, I wasn't necessarily going to raise it, but I wrote down what I think the top six will be. Roll it. I want to hear. Martin. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote contradicting myself because I wasn't thinking across the thing I'd written earlier. I did actually put Bagnaia down as the winner, but I'll sub that with Martin. Okay. So Martin winning. Mm-hmm. Mark Marquez second. Mm. Joan Mir third. Alex Rins fourth. Paul Spargo fifth. And Maverick Vinales sixth. Worth Quattraro. Seventh or lower. Wow. Okay. So if I run six here real quick. Yeah. Bagnaia, Martin, Miller, Marquez, Oliveira. Yeah. Mir. Okay. <laughs> we'll see how well, long we are. <laughs> yeah, we'll return to this <laughs> next week. Rich has wrote this all down, people, so we will know that we are how wrong we are when we actually see the race unfold. All right, I think that pretty much wraps it up for the yeah. for the racing. As I said earlier, guys, I did get the interview with Greg White. Um, fascinating 90 minutes of conversation with Greg. Definitely well worth listening to. His perspective on some of the things in MotoGP, the Americans in MotoGP, was really very interesting because he's watched these guys. You know, he has ways of contacting them and talks to them all the time. So very fascinating interview. And with that, I think we will sign off, Rich. I have nothing more and think the news has already been, been covered. So guys, I want you all to be safe and to ride safe calm before the storm looking forward to next weekend and i'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about when we come back what just a little bit over a week from today talking about three what i'm sure are going to be hot and interesting races from qatar yes and with that we'll go to the greg's white interview cheers everyone Hey, Motor Potters, it's Jim with another Jim's Corner interview. Today I have with me the guy from Greg's Garage, fellow podcaster elite, Greg White. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. Really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, my pleasure is all mine, Greg. So um, we want to get into talking about, I know, your show and what you do there. So for so we have some European listeners and stuff who may not have heard about Greg's Garage. If you could kind of... Uh, give us a little synopsis of exactly what it is in your podcast and where we can find it. That'd be great. Yeah. So there's a couple facets to Greg's garage is something I started years ago. Um, actually way back in the day in the early two thousands, I used to host a show called two wheel Tuesday on a network called speed channel. And that was from Greg's garage, but it was actually called two wheel Tuesday, but a lot of people used to call it Greg's garage. So when I knew that show was wrapping up, I kind of jumped on the idea of being able to brand it like that. And, um, you know, some years ago, I want to say probably eight years ago, I started a YouTube channel and I was doing quite a bit of content, testing motorcycles and talking to people and doing all that stuff. You know, I had uh, riders on interviewing some, you know, Chad Reed was on, Nikki Hayden was on at the time. Um, and and then that kind of went away when I started working with Moto America and, and getting pretty busy with them back in 2016. And then um Jason Pridmore, who's my commentating partner and obviously two-time AMA champ and two-time world champ with World Endurance, he and I started having a conversation about wanting to start a podcast. And so we branded it Greg's Garage Pod with co-host Jason Pridmore. And we've, as of today, we've done 161 uh, episodes over the couple of years that we've been doing it. And much like yourself, we talk a lot of road racing. We talk a lot of Moto America, obviously, because we work there. MotoGP, World Superbike, because both Jason and I have a lot of contacts in the paddock. We have a lot of friends who are there. We have a lot of inside and in, in, uh, inside information and insight into that paddock. 
And then the same thing like on Supercross and flat track. So we try to spread it out depending on what content's available for the week. Because as you know, some weeks are easier than others to, to generate content for a podcast. Oh, yeah. It's a little lean at times. Uh, my cohort, Rich, who is from the UK, we've been able to gather some interviews from some BSB guys and things like that from his side. So I'm trying to do the same here on our side of it. And uh, I know our fans that we have, subscribers and stuff to the show, said, hey, why don't you get Greg White on? Why don't you get Greg on? Oh, that's really, that's really nice, actually. Thanks, everybody who suggested that. Appreciate it. Yeah, because, I mean, there's just so much that, you know, we could talk about. And it's, you know, two guys chatting about motorcycle racing. So what isn't really there to know or do? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I want to ask this question. How did you get into the whole motorcycling thing? Like, for me, you know, like my dad had a bike, so I started riding that kind of thing. How, how, did, you, <laughs> how did you get to it? Well, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version, but bottom line is my dad did have some motorcycles when I was younger, but my parents separated when I was five years old. But my dad was a uh, just a jack of all trades. He was a craftsman. He was a, um, a union carpenter, but he ended up in the last, I don't even know, 40 years of his life, he was a marine carpenter. But when I was a little kid, he used to take triumphs and bsas and he would chop them up and he would make these cafe racers and i've always had an affinity for it my mother on the other hand was she didn't like motorcycles they were dangerous my dad had was going to work in boston one time and slipped on some sand and you know has a rod in his leg so that was it you know one accident she knew about it it was over for us so i didn't get to ride um just looked at motorcycles from afar i, I think you remember jim when we were kids honda had this poster one year that I was able to get a hold of and put on my wall. And it had like every model. It was like little chiclets of every single model of Honda. Yes, and I, I remember just, that. Yeah, remember I that think one? I had it I too, yeah. stare at the wall and everything. You just dream of motorcycles and any chance I could get. If, if I got to ride on a moped, you know, up at New Hampshire at a lake or anytime my brother, Jeff White, he stole a motorcycle one, he didn't steal it, he got a bike and then he, he slid it into the house, into the side, like tried to have this Hudaka thing for years anyway so eventually um i'm off to college at 18 years old and i get my first taste of a motorcycle which was a honda ascot 500 and i soon crashed it on the way down a mountain going 70 this q-tip you know what a q-tip is oh yeah yeah mm, yeah. yeah an old lady who's like licking the steering wheel she pulled out in front of me i had no idea what to do so i crashed and the cable that holds up a telephone pole stopped me dead at a 70 mile an hour slide. And I jumped up and I thought, this is great. I'm going to give this a go. <laughs> so um, that's kind of what started my, my real passion for it. And then when I was 19, there was a set of circumstances that I left. Um, I left like I was in college for a year. And then my mom and I got into an argument and I left and moved out. And first thing I did was buy a motorcycle, a, a Kawasaki EX500. And then I was just Joe Ryder, you know, and then I went off to college and then blah, 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 blah. And I went to college in Prescott, Arizona at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And there oh, wow. is one of the sickest roads, 89A, that that goes right through Prescott. So it's down in the Desert Valley by this town called Wickenburg. And then it goes through this national forest that's all twisty. And if you have a street bike and you have a set of balls, you can drag your knee, you know, on this road. And so like when I had time in the middle of the day or, you know, after work in school, I would go on the bike and I would just ride up and down this road, up and down, up and down, up and down, just learning and enjoying myself. And um, then in 19, well, I'm not going to say the year, but then when I was in college in Arizona, I got to go to my first AMA national, watch it as a fan and um, thought this was great. 
And then eventually what happened was I graduated from college. I go to work in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm out from underneath my mom's thumb. And the first paycheck that I got, I eventually I sold the EX 500 because when I graduated from college, I think I was in like $2,000 of credit card debt, which at the time was like monumental. Like there was no way I could start a life. So I sold the bike, paid the credit card debt off. And then uh, first pay, big paycheck I got from work, I went right down to Fox's Suzuki Kawasaki in Roxborough, North Carolina. And I bought a Kawasaki ZX6E. And soon after that, I went to the last MotoGP race in 1994 at Laguna Seca, ran into a friend from college who used to ride white spar with me. And he was racing AMA nationals. And the very next weekend was the final round in 1994 at road Atlanta. And, uh, he invited me down. He was racing and snuck in. Like I didn't even pay for a pass. It was like a big ruckus, but I stood on the sidelines. I stood next to Colin Edwards dad, by the way. And it was my first time on TV as a fan. I'm wearing a Scott Russell screaming chief hat on backwards. I'm standing on the fence and they were shooting Colin Edwards dad, but I was standing there. And, um, I ended up working at the company for four years that produced that. So every now and then someone would find it in the tape library and be like, is this you? And I'm like, yeah, that's me. And then, uh, but I stood on the sidelines and I met guys like uh, Miguel Duhamel and Scott Russell and Steve Crevier. And, and I thought I'm doing this. And then the very next year, the ZX six R came out in 1995. And, uh, I went down to Roebling road in 1995, took the rider school and started racing Weira. 95, 96, 97 when AMA Pro and 97 was the year I met the folks at Chet Burke's Productions because I was in uh, Atlanta by then and I took Danny Walker's American Flat Track school. It was one of his first schools he had ever done. He was either the first one or the second one in Conyers, Georgia. And there was a guy there named Brian Drebber who was shooting, didn't know Brian, was shooting for a show called Bike Week. I hadn't heard of that on a network called Speed Vision. What is that? And uh, I lived in the town of Marietta which is where Chet Burke's Productions was. And so Brian said, I will introduce you to all the TV people. And that's what happened. I ended up meeting them and uh, it kind of went from there. You know, the rest is, is a bunch of stories, you know, that, uh, that I could tell, but I don't want to bore people with. But the biggest one is the guy who currently produces Supercross and Motocross, Chris Bond, he was producing AMA Superbike back then. And he said to me in 1997, hey, what if we put a microphone in your helmet and a camera on your bike and an earpiece in and you commentate live during the races? And I was like, hell yeah, let's do that. And so I did that at uh, Pikes Peak, Colorado, the very first AMA national I ever qualified for, Jim. Hmm. 750 Super Sport. I had a microphone and an earpiece in and I heard the commentary the entire time around the racetrack. And then you would hear, we're coming to you. And then they would go, let's go down to Greg on the racetrack. And I would talk right in the middle of corners and stuff. And that's kind of how the broadcast career started. Wow. That's really amazing because there's so many parallels to myself. My, my dad had motorcycles. He was a machinist, could make anything. He brought him a little scat cat bike for me. I think I was like five. Went flying up the road, turned around, came back down the road, didn't know how to stop, went flying off the end of the road. We live at the end of a dead end road. Went after the field, went into the thorn bushes. My dad... Pulled me out of the thorn bushes crying, set me on the kitchen counter sink, and pulled up the thorns and dabbed uh, chrome all over me, screaming like a kid. <laughs> One th- I wanted nothing to do with that bike for a whole other year. Next summer came, I was hooked, I was done, I'm into bikes, I was whipping around the house, the yard. Next thing I know, Dad says, you want to race bikes? I said, yep, I want to do motocross, I want to jump things. 
He says, well, you know what? Let's let's go down to this local short track and we'll watch dirt track. And I saw these kids that were the same age as me riding bikes that were looked in my mind looked super cool. I was totally in. Next week, I'm there racing and went. From Dude, you there. sound like you, you sound like you have a Western PA accent, too. Uh, no, from? actually, Southern Indiana is where I grew up. But yeah, really? Yeah. Interesting. It has a yeah. good flat track community there in Southern oh. Indiana too. Michigan. Yeah, we went every, oh yeah, Michigan oh, Mafia. Yeah. You'd, yeah. You'd have those Down guys that have the X and... on the number plates. Yeah. Hey, mm-hmm. I raced against all the Hayden brothers. Every single mm-hmm. one of them got beat horribly badly by <laughs> get lapped by them, you know, and whatnot. But yeah, that's just really wild. You know, the sneaking in part did all that kind of stuff too. No, I didn't yeah. realize that it was sort of that chance meeting for you to actually get into doing the TV part of it my my whole career honestly has been just just dumb luck and uh and taking opportunities where they come you know i i think when i started uh, on speed vision back in the day there were only in six million households and you know at at the peak in the united states which has been a few years now in terms of uh like cable television right because it's it's on the decline dramatically actually but in cable television i think that the peak was about 191 million homes in the u.s so six million even back then, in 1997, there was still probably, you know, 160, 170 million homes. It was pretty small. So the network, like the people who put me on TV were like, ah, who cares? You know, no, no one cares. Oh, this guy stinks. It's fine. You know, like, hey, do the first like six or seven features for free just to establish yourself, you know. So people were trying to take advantage of me and they did because I was like, well, this is kind of cool. You know, and and I turned around to Suzuki and I turned around to Dunlop and I just said, hey, look, I'm doing this onboard camera microphone thing. You know, if I they allowed me to put a sticker on my windscreen because back then we'd always mount the camera like from the cockpit view through so you could see the uh, see the the tack and, and through the windscreen. So they allowed me to put two tiny stickers and I was getting like two sets of Dunlops a weekend for free, which wasn't really free. Right. right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Suzuki would like give me a handlebar or a foot peg or something like that. And I was happy to do it, you know? And, and then I got the opportunity to work on some features on the show bike week that Brian Drebber was doing. And the first one I did was actually formerly USA. You remember that series? Oh yeah. 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 Formerly USA at road Atlanta. And I want to say it was 2017. And Rich Oliver at the time was racing a 250 GP bike against Fritz Kling. Right. Yeah. He's no longer with us on a Yama monster. And when I saw Fritz Kling beat Rich Oliver, and it was a crazy race because obviously the thousand would smoke the 250 on the back straightaway at road Atlanta. And at this time there was gravity cavity, but Rich would just smoke him. I mean, as soon as they'd get to turn one, pretty much Rich would go underneath him and then he would just check out. And then the Yama monster would gobble that thing up. And as I remember it, Fritz won both races by probably half a wheel length at the time. But I looked at Fritz and I said, oh, you can be a tall person, a bigger dude, and actually compete in racing. And so it kind of gave me a little bit more motivation at the time to keep going. But the reality was 97, 98, 99, 2000, um, you know, I'd already raced Wira 95, 96 as a novice, won a couple national championships as he famously will, I will get crushed on my podcast for by Jason Pridmore, if I ever mention it. But, um, you know, in doing that, those years to, to 2001, I mean, I had no crew. I was asking for people to take my bike to the races. I mean, it was an unorganized effort. I had one extra set of wheels, no body work some, sometimes, uh, a, a tackle box full of tools and a handful of spares. And I don't know how, but I mean, I made it. And at the time I was racing, 
turning my own wrenches and I was doing, you know, all the, all the TV or web stuff I could, what people don't realize is back in 1999 on speedvision.com, myself and the guy who's kind of running that deal, Mark Mitchell, I used to commentate superbike races live over the internet an audio feed over the internet, like a radio broadcast all the way back in 99. Wow. But I did that because like they would pay my travel to the races, pay my hotel, you know? And it was, so I figured out any way I could to go racing and, and racing was a little different. You had a lot of factory teams back then, but you also had a lot of people out of the back of a van. You know, it was, it was really a, an incredible mix and, uh, but it was fun. It was fun to, to learn it and to, and to get racing. And, um, and then that got me kind of transitioned into when speed vision was bought out by Fox and they turned it to speed channel. I was kind of faced with a choice and the choice was keep racing or do television full time. And that's when I, uh, kind of replaced at the time, Larry Myers, who was having a really hard time with his knees and stuff. And so they put me in the pits at full time, you know, and, uh, I had done it on and off. And so that's what kind of started that whole thing. Well, did you ever do anything with Dave Despain? I don't remember you doing anything with Dave, but yeah, I worked with Dave for a lot of years, actually, uh, both in front of the camera and behind the scenes. So I, I used to produce uh, the show Motorcyclist that was on Speed Channel for a couple of years. So I was the producer and editor for that show primarily. And I worked on the show Bike Week that Dave did as well. So I started working at Chet Burke's Productions, who produced all that stuff when Larry hosted it. And then Dave, as I remember, his contract had expired with ESPN. And then he came over to Speed Channel and kind of took that show over from, from Larry. And then Motorcyclist came about and he hosted that as well. So yeah, I worked with him for a lot of years, actually. I learned a lot of how to do television from Dave, you know, and Dave, let me tell you something about Dave Spain. That guy can do a motorcycle standup. He can tie, he can tie something to anything motorcycles. So he's out on something called the loneliest road one time, and he's standing next to a pile of rocks and he says something like, don't quote me, but it's something like this. Welcome to Bike Week. I'm Dave Despain. You know, I'm standing next to a pile of rocks, and this rock reminds me of when I was a child and got to play with rocks, which reminds me of when I used to ride motorcycles as a child. Let's go to racing highlights. I was like, are you kidding me? Did that just happen? Did he just connect a pile of rocks to his childhood in motorcycles? I'm like, that is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty incredible watching the guy work during That's that cool. time. That's cool. I, I've met Dave a couple of times just from dirt tracking and stuff. And you know, unfortunately, Dave was there doing some announcing at an AMA National at the Springfield Mile when Joel Green was killed. I think in eighty eight or eighty nine. And mm. I will never forget how eloquent Dave was when he got back onto the public address system and explained basically what everyone knew had happened and he said that you know we will go on because joel and would have wanted it it was just it was oh it was it was amazing um second time i ran into dave was there was at the indianapolis they had a thing called the velodrome where they in 82 for the pan am games they would race the bicycles on mm -hmm. well they decided to put a concrete track on the bottom of it and they were racing go-karts and motorcycles so we went there and we're racing mm -hmm. on the concrete and it was in May, month of May, Indy 500, that kind of thing. And Data Spain shows up. And he's there, and he's got Jan Bikas with him. And he walks him down to, like, turn, in between turn one and two. 
when the bikes are going by, and I will never forget the look on Jan Bikas' face as Dave was like telling everybody what was going on. And all of a sudden I looked around and I'm like, well, Dave's missing. Where is he? Next thing I know, he's up in the uh, PA stand announcing for the maybe 100 people who were watching the show. He was doing go-karts. He was doing the motorcycles. And just <laughs> do, You've been on ESPN that day doing qualifications for the 500, and then you go do that, which is just, that's just Dave, I would guess. Yeah, he enjoy, He really enjoyed the work. He did. But his his strength, without question, has always been the ability to do both. Like, if you ask me to write an article, like with normal grammar and things like that, it's, it's difficult for me. I've been writing scripts for television for 26 years. Dave just has an innate ability to take a situation and just kind of understand what it needs, you know? Mm. And his ability, like he is one of the top five in the world on a teleprompter when he was at his peak. I mean, he was amazing on a teleprompter. What people didn't realize on the show Wind Tunnel that he did for years is that a lot of what he did was on a teleprompter. He just has a way of being able to read, pace himself, and make it sound like it's very conversational, you know? Wow. So, um, yeah, I mean, he was an interesting guy. You know, we're, we're not close by any stretch of the imagination. You know, it's it wasn't that type of relationship, but uh, I definitely learned quite a bit from Dave over the years. And between him and Chet Burks and all the other guys that I worked with, this guy Ed Coglin, who did a lot of shows during the day, I think he was one of the one of the originators of. Um, uh, you remember, uh, Moto, was it Motor World Two with Jerry Bernardo and right, that whole yeah. television? That was this guy Ed Coglin who did a lot of that, and and I worked with him closely, and of course Chris Bond, who now produces Motocross Supercross and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of great influences in, in my career, and. And, you know, just like in any business or in any any setting, you always take a little bit here, a little bit there from these people, and it molds who you are. Wow, that's impressive. You're talking about, like, molding people. Um, hopefully this isn't touchy. Were you and Nikki very close? You guys seem to have, like, a really great rapport with each other. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we were close. Um, but Nikki, like, so I met Nikki, I think, first time I met Nikki was just turned in 16 he was 15 turned 16 i believe and you know he's just a he was a good dude i mean the thing with nick was he was the same guy at 16 years old as he was when he won the world championship i mean i don't want to fool anybody and say that nick and i were on the phone every week and we were chatting it up and we were doing all that kind of stuff but when you you know i was on the track with nick but he never saw me unless he was lapping me right no so but, yeah but a lot of it had to do with the fact that, you know, as a pit reporter, I was there for some key moments in his racing life, in Tommy's racing life and Roger's racing life. And I'm really close with the family and all the way back to the first year that Nick raced full time with Jason Pridmore as a teammate on hypercycle Suzuki. I was working for the show bike week at the time. And I had the opportunity to go to Owensboro to their house and stay there for about a week. And we shot a, like a, an extended feature with them. Uh, Nick was 16. Raj was oof, 14 at the time or 13. Yeah. The younger, like yeah. Yeah. The younger daughter, um, Jenny, Jenny's the older one. Oh, Kathleen's older the one. youngest. Yeah. Kathleen, Kathleen was like 11 or 12 years old. And you know, it's, it's like when you spend time with people for a week and you get to know them at that level, and then you see them, you know, week in and week out at the racetrack and doing all that kind of stuff. It was great. And for Nick, he was always super generous with his time. So like when I started the Greg's garage thing, I called him up and said, Hey, and he was like, yeah, anything you need. Like I didn't have to explain it to him. And 
he always tried to find time. And what's really interesting is, is that in all the years that I knew Nick, he only asked me for something one time. And it was really towards the end. And it was just a, you know, cause I had asked him many times, Hey man, we do this interview for me. Hey, you know, you got time to do this interview. Hey, you know, you want to hang out and pedal bicycles together. I'm going to be in California, you know? And he was always gracious with his time, but man, the moment that Nick finally asked me to do him a favor, I was like, what are you kidding me? I mean, I would have done anything for him. Not because he's Nicky Hayden, just because he was such a good person. And it was really funny because when he won the world championship, you know, I had been texting him on the regular, you know, like how's GP and all, because he had left in, in 03 and didn't have a great time of it in GP at the beginning. I mean, the travel was really difficult. His family was there with him quite a bit. Um, I had raced uh, BMW Boxer Cup. So I went to a couple of races. Uh, GP races with BMW Boxer Cup, and I just hung out with Nick in his motorhome and his family, and we had a great time and all that stuff. Um, but it was really funny when he won the world championship, and I said congratulations, and he just kind of indicated like, "Hey, thanks for actually caring about me before I won the world championship." It's amazing how your phone explodes right after you win a world championship. Then you really get to know how many people know you and have your phone number, you know, kind of a thing. So I would say I was I was close with Nikki. But he wasn't like one of my best friends. Like we weren't best friends, but we were definitely close. We talked a few times about, you know, being old and on a porch and in rocking chairs and reminiscing about AMA days and MotoGP days, you know? So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I love that dude, man. He was he was such a great human being. And it was a it's it's not a loss as much for racing as it is just for the potential of him being a father, of him being an uncle. You know what I mean? Like oh, all yeah. those things yeah. that, cause he was such a good dude. He was such a mama's boy too, man. Such a mama's boy. I mean, you know, bought Rose a Corvette for her birthday one time and stuff. Yeah. He was a good dude. Yeah. I, I miss Nikki tremendously. First time I ever saw him was Lima half mile in 89. And the rumor had gone around that the Haydens were there, you know, they were legendary <laughs> even back then they were almost yeah. larger than life. And Nikki goes out on his 60 and he's so short that he can only touch with one foot down and the other foot is, I don't know, I'm going to say maybe three inches off the peg. And he goes out on the track and everybody, everybody, everybody quit what they were doing. People put down wrenches to go watch this kid. And it was mm. the day after the national. So it was a slick groove, dusty pea gravel half mile. And Nikki had that 60 and he threw it in that first turn, never cracked the throttle, never put his foot down and went right around that track. And the other guys standing there, everybody looked at each other and somebody goes, that's a future world champion. So <laughs> I feel privileged to have watched Nikki go from being on a little 60 dirt tracker to being 2006 world champion. And I'm, I, you know, my wife will tell you stories about me yelling at the TV in Daytona when Nikki won on the RC 51. <laughs> Cause he was every, he was, he was so genuine, you know, we had little conversations, nothing like yours, but they were just such genuine people. All of them were Earl, mm -hmm. uh, Rose, everyone, which was fantastic. And yeah, it's just, the whole thing's just sad, but. Well, what's really funny about the Haydens that a lot of people don't know. And some people have heard me tell the story before is that, um, the competitive one in the whole family's Rose, she is by far the most competitive person she raced. It's her story, but I'm going to tell it as I remember it. So she raced a series called Powder Puff. I think it, you know, it was in like Western, Northwestern Kentucky, maybe bleeding up into a couple of states that are in and around the area. 
And she was like undefeated for three years, but there was still one woman that she was racing against that just kept getting closer and closer and closer. And at this point, Rose knows like she's at her last race. I think the family's coming. She knows that she can't race anymore or whatever it was. And um, the story goes that this woman finally passed Rose for the lead and Rose couldn't do anything with her. And it was like the last lap of the last race she's ever going to do. And she just T-boned the crap out of this chick and took them both clean out because she was, wasn't going to lose to her. So wow. she won like every race in three years except the last one. And you, you, when she tells the story, she she gets this, she tilts her head and gets a smile and a devilish laugh. And you're like, yeah, okay. So Earl was the fun-loving one, right? Earl was the one where the boys could tease and they could, you know, and he would do all kinds of stuff for them and he'd get all angry and they'd laugh about him. But Rose was the hammer, man. And she's the one who really, and I'll tell you what, uh, you know, we, we mentioned, um, you know, Jenny's the oldest and everyone will tell you, she was the fastest one of them all. She was the fastest Hayden. Really? Wow. On a motorcycle. She whipped everybody's ass, everybody. But then as she got older and she, she got out of racing and found tennis and she found a love for tennis and went to, went to Kentucky on a scholarship of tennis scholarship. I mean, immensely talented athletes, the whole, the whole lot of them. Oh yeah. Incredible. Yeah. They, they truly deserve the title of first racing family here mm -hmm. in the U S entirely. So let's talk a little bit about maybe Moto America for, for the sake of it. You are still doing the commentary with Jason, right? For the, yes. for Moto America, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Got my contract and signed it and all that stuff. So fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I'm trying to get back into Moto A. Kind of okay. got away from it a little bit because I started. How dare you? I'm um, sorry. <laughs> the opportunity... No, no, no. It's, it really is a common story and it's understandable. Yeah. It's understandable. It, it, I mean, it's it was... gone through that huge influx of what's happened as far as the ownership, the DMG, that fallout, Rain Rainey picking up all the scraps and trying to put it back together again and trying to piece it all back together again. And all the factories left basically and whatnot and uh yeah this opportunity for me to do this podcast appeared so i took it with both hands because i want to share my voice with everyone but now it seems like it's coming back on the rise like it's starting to to come good again rainy's efforts have that would you would you agree with that yeah i would definitely agree with it i mean you know <sighs> Obviously, 2009, when Daytona Motorsports Group took over, the I think the idea, the general idea that they had, which was to try to make motorcycle racing more like NASCAR, was well-intended. Um, but I think you had a lot of factors involved. You had the economy that was, you know, crashing at the time. Remember, it was late 07, and we saw all the signs early 08. So the economy had crashed. People were losing their houses. So, you know, all these fun things that people do go away. Mm -hmm. And DMG took it over and made so many radical changes that, can I swear on your podcast or no? Go right ahead. We do. Our, the, the motorcycle media really just shit all over road racing, you know, and, and I'm not going to name names, but those people that are still alive that did it know who they are. And, you know, when you're a race fan and your life is falling apart, uh, you're a fan of anything. I don't care if it's canoeing or whatever, but it's something that costs a lot of money and your life is falling apart and you're losing your job and your house is worth nothing and all that kind of stuff. It's really easy for you to read all the stuff about racing, you know, and all the websites and stuff that are just constantly shitting on it. And I think that really, you know, the, the fans determine 
the success of a sport ultimately. And so the fans just kind of went away. They, they had other things to do, other things occupying them. I think life was changing. And that group at the time did nothing to try to, you know, fix it. You know, it was their big ideas and it was the little things, you know, the rule changes, the disaster of rolling starts at Daytona and all this kind of stuff, you know, but, uh, I think having lived through it and commentated through it and everything else and kept a positive attitude is one of those people that refused to shit on the sport because I understood you, you do that. What, you know, why would I do that? It's my own sport. You know, I don't need to report on all the bad stuff. That's what all the gossipy websites are for, but it was really well intended, but unfortunately it didn't work out and the damage was done. And it got to the point where we had what five races or something like that, or four races on the year. None of the racetracks wanted us anymore. We weren't bringing fans in, you know, the price that they wanted to, to charge to bring it in and all that kind of stuff. And so the AMA took it back from DMG. And then luckily for us, the Crave group, you know, with uh, Richard Varner and Terry Cargis and Wayne Rainey and, and Chuck Axlin, you know, picked up the pieces and they were like, now what do we do? And um, they have done a really good job of doing a couple things as, as it relates to the fan trying to create a fan experience at the racetrack as much as they possibly can. Not everything is within their control. Some racetracks we go to Moto America has more control than others, depending on who owns the track and you know, what's invested in it. But the other thing is, is, is doing a good job of their TV package. And you know, the first year was a total disaster. They were tape delayed. They were on CBS sports. They didn't control anything. Then they partnered with B in sports and B in sports brought a level, you know, they were funding some of it. Moto America was funding some of it but it kind of brought a new level. That's when I came in, Jason came in, we were able to really work with that team. And I was lucky enough to work with our producer at the time, Dan Parisi, who had worked at speed channel, who had produced the old AMA Superbike and stuff. So there was knowledge there of what to do. And then Moto America a couple of years ago took control, took the reins and started to fund the TV effort themselves and really control their content. Then they launched, launched the Moto America live plus app where people can get on there and watch all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, they flick the switch at 1030 in the morning and you can watch everything all the way through. There's more digital expansion in terms of, you know, distribution for the product that they produce. And so that's, that's been a big help. And the other thing is, is that the race teams we do have are on board. They all understand that we're still in a building, you know, building time, but the biggest thing, and I think what you're seeing Jim, honestly, is because the sport in 2020 wasn't a hundred percent dependent, depending or dependent on race fans coming to the racetrack that the partners were committed to getting racing out there during COVID in 2020, that we were able to take advantage of a couple of races where we didn't have fans because of COVID protocols. And we still went on the air and it was like NASCAR, I think came back on like a Wednesday or Thursday. And then we came back, Moto America was back racing you know, we were the second motorsports series to come back. And then like five hours later, Supercross went on, you know, and then because of the lack of content, a lot of our stuff, I think oof, in 2020, I want to say 18 of 20 races we had, or something like that, or 16 of 18 went on Fox sports one. And that was a big deal. I, my phone started ringing. Hey dude, haven't seen you in years. Where have you been? You know, <laughs> like I've been here commentating, you know? And then they've made some key hires and, and focus on social media. The social media has grown quite a bit. And obviously, as you know, that's how you get the message out. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the TV package is better and the rules package lining up once again with, with as close as we can 
to what World Superbike rules are, FIM World Superbike. So World Super Sport, as we know, this year is a lot to talk about there, you know, um, and some of these other classes they have. And then the invention of Twins Cup, which is like, hey, here's a twin, here's a displacement limit, but it's a super bike. You can do anything you want to this bike. And that class morphed into what we thought was going to be older dudes like you and I wanting to come racing and spend money to an intermediate class from junior cup into 600s. And it's turned into something totally different. And man, the field is deep and there's just a lot of people in there. And there's a lot of young talent on the backside of the motorcycle. Meaning we have a, a team in twins cup where we have this, this, uh, this woman engineer who's now in the sport and she's going to be doing electronics and all this kind of stuff. And she is a smart cookie. And so, you know, that entry into, into twins, you could see her on a superbike team in, in a short period of time, two, three years. I mean, who knows, you know? So there's a lot of benefits with how it works. There's a fan experience that Moto America is trying to create at the racetrack for, for people that is more than just, you know, watching racing. And then there's the TV package and, um, you know, social media. And of course, you know, the idea of baggers. And if you go on the, their YouTube channel and look at how many views baggers has, that's part of the, that's part of the brand, Jim. You know what I mean? It's part of building the brand of Moto America and this day and age racing doesn't cut it anymore. You have to entertain people, you know, this new generation of a person doesn't really care about racing anymore. They don't care. You know, it's, 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 how many times have you seen a five-year-old look at another five-year-old and just go racing across the field on foot? You know, parents are stopping them. Well, hold on, you know, Timmy, you know, you're whatever. And so it's, it's just a different climate. I think we live in, and you've got to figure out as a series, how do you connect with this younger audience and what's going to make a big difference? Yeah, you know? I agree. You know, for me, you know, I wound up getting married, had a family, they're, you know, finances are finances. You don't have the loose change to go see a race. At the yep. time, none of the races were near to where I live here in Ohio because they kind of walked away from mid-Ohio, which I thought was a great weekend at the time. But I understand why they did, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. So I was really pleased to see in 2020 they were going to do um, Indy. They, you know, they had a deal. They're going to race at Indy as a standalone series. I had some guys I work with said, hey, guys, let's go. Let's, let, you know, let's take our camper. Let's go. Let's spend the weekend. Let's do this. Let's go have some fun, you know, with with, with the guys. And, um, you know, it didn't happen because they moved the date, COVID, and it got fallen back to where they put the Indy 500 onto the same day, same weekend. So it got squished. And, okay, yeah, you know, so that kind of thing. So now, uh, you know, it happens. Now I've got the means and ability. I'm, I want to go to Pittsburgh this year to see the track there. I, you know, I want to see Petrucci ride in there, which is, I think is a, we'll, we'll get to that, but I think that's a really big coup for, for, uh, the series to have a, a Danilo Petrucci. I had never heard of him. He <laughs> seriously, Jim, come on. Yeah, I did. Come on, okay. Jim. All right. You got me. <laughs> Sorry. I fell for that one guys. That was me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just did it yeah. with such a straight face on me, man. Yeah, it's, it's what I do. It's what I do. Yeah. So, you know, I want to see that. I've got uh, people that I'm trying to bring to the sport who are, you know, of my age, my ilk and whatnot. But it's it's that experience, right? And that was the thing that I tried when it when uh, MotoGP was at Indianapolis was to get some friends to go and take them. And I knew the places to go to walk, to show them things and whatnot. And it, I said, it's one of these things. It's you have to go. Because you can't appreciate what's happening on the TV 
until you see it when you're live. And then they were just wowed. And so I created four or five lifelong motorcycle racing guys that now we're going to start trying to go some of these Moto A's and have a guy's weekend and do that. It's just, again, but you're right. It's that whole entertainment package and how do you get that? So I know my son, I wanted him to, to ride, maybe race. I was never going to push him into racing, but he loves soccer. Fine by me. That's what you want to do. Great. And we've done that. And, you know, we occasionally go, we do go to the Supercross together. I'm trying to get him to go to uh, some of the Moto A stuff with me this year, just to kind of introduce him, just to be a fan of the sport, you know, mm-hmm. just know there's something else out there than a video game and a soccer ball. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the video games. Yeah. yeah, no, I think it's true. Um, I've always said this, you know, if you can get someone to the racetrack and you put them in a corner and you can listen to someone drag their knee right in front of their face and they see it they're going to be a fan. They don't have a choice but to be a fan. But the way that you hold on to them is you've got to take the helmet off the rider and you've got to showcase personalities. You've got to connect one human being to another human being. And that's what, that's the success of NASCAR. Having heroes and having villains, you know, really helps. Like last year, so 2021, we had the second highest attendance for a superbike race ever at Road America. Wow. And the only race that beat it was 2006, which was during the time of Maladin Spees. And, you know, that part of what made that era so good, if you go back and look at the results, the racing really wasn't that good. Either Matt checked out or Ben checked out. There wasn't a lot of actual racing up front, but it's the perception that it created because people hated Matt Maladin and people loved Ben Spees. You know, I mean, people showed up at the racetrack with shirts on that had a circle around it with a line through it like Ghostbusters. And it said anyone but Matt. And they would roll right up to that dude and ask for his autograph, you know. So a lot, I think, why people didn't like Matt at the time was because he was he was the guy who won everything. Right. I think at that point he'd won six or something. And so um, and then Ben won three and then Matt won uh, his seventh at the end of it. But so that's part of the reason was because. It gave people a reason to want to turn the TV on. It gave people a reason to want to come to the racetrack. You know, when passion gets tied to it, especially people to people, you know, it's, it's famous, like in, in Howard Stern's uh, movie, you know, he's, he's in a meeting and, and the guy says, Hey, listen, you know, people are four times more likely to listen to you if they don't like you. And that's really true. And that was said to me when I started hosting that show, two wheel Tuesday, be anybody you want to be, just don't piss the sponsors off. But I'm going to tell you, if you're an asshole, people are going to really want to tune in and watch you. I just couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't be that guy, you know, but um, that's the way it is today with today. You know, people want people that have an opinion and they want to have, you know, listen to people that create polarizing points of view. And, and that's the popular deal. So how do you create that in racing? You know, and that's why social media plays an important part because you can connect these personalities of these riders. That's why having a show like Inside Moto America makes a difference as well. The investment that Moto America is making in that show to try to get you behind the scenes. But it's really, if you can get someone to the racetrack and you can have them stand at a fence that close and watch someone buzz by at 120 miles an hour, oh, they're hooked. But if I can add to that, Jake Gagne, who rolls up to an eight-year-old kid, leans down and signs their shirt and has a conversation with them, and you as a parent go, forget it. I love Jake Gagne. He's the greatest guy ever. Then, then those people are going to want to see what Jake Gagne is up to. Right. You know, and that, and that's honestly, Jim, that's part of the job that we have as a commentating team, you know, is to try to, to, 
when racing slows down, which it does, especially when Bobier was here or, or Gagne was here is to bring that insight into the conversations we have with these riders, how they react to life and what they do, you know, and, and that's, uh, that's part of the challenge when you have sprint racing, like we do, you know, when you have one hour program versus a NASCAR show, that's why we're pretty excited about Moto America doing the Daytona 200. And I mean, me getting back down there and this will be my first time in the booth for the 200 for, you know, and that's a two and a half hour. Hopefully it's a two and a half hour broadcast, right, no red right. flags, red flags. It's going longer, but you know, a two and a half hour broadcast. And so when we're down there, I mean, the research that we do to try to get to as many riders as possible, because it gives us an opportunity we don't have in sprint racing to really go back through the field and, 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 you know, capture some stories that we normally don't get to capture, but it's, it's really important in, in for the growth of the sport. And to, just to add to that, I think one of the exciting things about Moto America say versus like a formula one or a NASCAR or even Moto GP is that all their, all of our riders are still accessible. You know, you can walk through the pits and, you know, right there at the end of the canopy is hospitality and there's. Josh Aaron or Jake Gagne, or, you know, last year, uh, Loris Baz just sitting there and you can roll up and just say, Hey, how you doing? Oh, good. How you doing? Thanks for coming out. I appreciate it. All right. You know, and it's the accessibility that, that makes the sport appealing to a lot of people. Yeah. And the good thing about it is the riders of Moto America are friendly too. I've had the opportunity just because I've gone to the Moto GP in Austin all the time. And by some quirk of fate, I wind up at a restaurant that has Loris Caparossi or like last year, I was at the restaurant where, um, oh gosh. Uh, wow. I, did you know, really just do this? Yes, I just did that. Cause that's how, who is it? All right, hold something. on, hold on. Let me guess. Uh, uh, Colin Edwards. No, no, no. Troy Bayless, uh, Valentino Rossi. No, no, no. Casey Stoner. No, he wasn't there. Mark Marquez. No way. His brother, he would have been alone. Uh, no, I don't know. Was it a current rider? Yeah. Current yeah. Rider. It's, it, it's, uh, he was riding for, uh, Stograda in Moto three. He had, and I just oh, so you're now you're dipping me into Moto Three. Yeah, sorry, uh, but he's going back to Moto Two, and he had the he was oh, I just like I got his face, but I can't put it together. <laughs> oh, oh this my is god, terrible. he was on he was on Biaggi's team last yeah, year. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, oh my god, what a <laughs> how dare you? Anyway, we'll move on. We'll move on. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, you know, there you can. Now tell I'm gonna me. have to pull up the internet and go check some results real quick. No, I know because it's like because uh, now he's got a Moto Two right. He went back to Moto Two. But he's really short or whatever. Anyway, but I've, I've met Marquez. I've got him to autograph a great photo that I got of him going over Luki Heights just laying black, which is fantastic. But that's the thing that I'm, I'm looking forward to is investigating the paddock that way and, and getting to some of the writers and maybe hopefully finding a few who consent to to doing interviews for, for my podcast just so that the, our American listeners can kind of identify with these guys and try to boost Moto America in any way that I can you know, with my small platform per se whatever everything helps man everything helps mm -hmm. you know 100 percent. so let's talk about the racing if, if if i'm going to the moto america races i'm stoked for daytona to be back in the schedule and done the right way i i feel who, who should we look for where where do we need to look where you know oh boy on the superbike side of things you have jake Gagne coming off of a 17 race win season 17 of 20 Gagne figured some things out in testing with the I don't even know what the name of the team is let me think about this with the fresh and lean progressive Yamaha race team I think that's it the attack is gone but nonetheless it's attack racing with Richard Stamboli they figured some stuff out 
uh, with a crew chief change and all that stuff. And Gagne really smoothed out his riding style. And Jake Gagne, I, I would put Jake Gagne up against anybody in the world. He is one of the most talented, if not the most talented, general motorcycle racer I've ever seen. Jake Gagne is the only person that I know of in history that qualified for a pro motocross, a Lucas Oil pro motocross race during a Moto America season. In 2017, he went to Miller Motorsports Park with a Yamaha in the back of his truck, and that dude made the main, made the gate, and scored points. Now, he got hurt, so he didn't do the second moto, but he scored points, and then he went on to, to win the, the Stock 1000 Championship that year. I mean, Anthony Gobert is the most talented motorcycle road racer I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, the, the, the stories that I witnessed that guy do when he was <laughs> unfit, uncaring, and just, I mean, he was a great dude, but he just didn't cr give a shit he was racing a motorcycle. Show up for 10 minutes, get on pole, and then leave. It was unreal. But Gagne is one of the best. Um, so he's the benchmark. And so the question becomes now everybody chasing him. Cameron Peterson has gone from Suzuki over to be teammates with, with uh, Jake Gagne. And I think that that's a really big move. Peterson has been flying as well in, in testing. The uh, Vision Wheel M4 X-Star Suzuki team, bleh, a lot of words to say. They're testing right now. They have a lot of things to go through. That bike admittedly is aging. You know, that the, the basis for that motorcycle is the same motorcycle that Tony Elias came off the couch two weeks before, came to Coda to fill in for Jake Lewis and won two races and won his way right into a ride in a national championship the next year. Same bike, you know, same frame, same motor and stuff like that. So the bike's getting a little long in the tooth, but there are parts to try. They're still working on developing that motorcycle as best they can to compete. And, you know, they have... Uh, Jake Lewis on the team and they have um, Richie Escalante on the team, you know, a rookie, but two immensely talented riders that could definitely pull it off. Um, you have a new team coming in on some BMW M's that's going to provide us with some great uh, racers in that, which I can't say anything really too specific about it now because the press release hasn't come out, you know, Oh, I can't get a world exclusive. No, oh. no, but you know, I mean, Moto America's posted, you know, like, hey, look, there's there's M1000s, you know, by Alpha, built by Alpha, ready to, you know, ready to come to the States. So there's, there's a lot of buzz around Superbike. Um, you know, internally, there's always the, you know, people belly aching about rules. But if you look at the way Matthew Skultz ended the season, that team took a huge step last year, did the Westby Racing team. So did Skultz in the way he rides. And they are continuing on the same path. You know, and so, I mean, things are looking really good at the sharp end. And there, you know, we lost Kyle Wyman, who is, you know, a top five guy to Harley Davidson to baggers and stuff, but he's a factory Harley rider. I think he's going to be probably the second highest paid rider in the paddock, you know, for good reason. But Superbike is looking really good in terms of on paper, the competitive level. The question just becomes, is it going to be a race for second again, or is somebody going to figure out how to race Jake Gagne? If they figure out how to race Jake Gagne, it is going to be a, an unbelievable season because there are riders in this field that names I haven't mentioned. There's extra bikes coming in. So net, net, we're going to have more super bikes than we had last year. On the super sports side, oh my God. I mean, you have the two front runners in super sport 
uh, Sean Dylan Kelly, who left to go join Cameron Bobier in Moto 2. And you have Richie Escalante, who was supposed to race a 600 initially and was kind of the favorite to win, even, you know, before the season started. Now he's in Superbike. So now you have a wide open field of talented riders. You know, Josh Heron's back in the mix. He's on a Ducati. You have Sam Lockoff, who really finished off the year strong and was just putting it on the podium and closing the gap to the leaders. He's been testing well. And there's just a host of other people that are just piling into the super sport class. Not to mention the fact the rules have completely changed. You know, you know, when you were watching racing, super sport was these inline 600s, right? All right. You got a CBR 600. You got an R6. You got a ZX6R, whatever. Yeah, no. It was just announced yesterday, I think. Yeah, I think yesterday morning I woke up to the fact that the GSX-R750 is now homologated for Supersport. That has to be fitted with a throttle-by-wire system, which isn't going to really cost all that much. The motor's not allowed to be changed because it already makes enough horsepower to be competitive in the class. All of a sudden, privateers are going, wait a second. I can have a 750 that makes 131, 132 horsepower stock it's the same weight as the 600. I don't have to touch the motor. I have to spend maybe 10 grand total on a throttle by wire system, a dashboard and ECU and other stuff to make it next generation. And I can go racing against a Ducati V2, which is what a 955 twin. You have a MV Augusta 800 triple. You have the triumph 765 triple. I mean, it is crazy. It's a crazy class. But the reality is, is that the Japanese aren't interested in the middleweight class and going racing that much anymore. And so you have companies like Ducati, Triumph, MV Augusta that are looking at that class saying, hey, what can we do to compete? I mean, I know KTM is looking at it hard. They might not have a platform right now, but it's not. Don't be surprised if by next year or even in 2024, they come out with a bike that's going to fit right into the category. Because although the company has said many times they don't want to compete in Superbike, that middleweight class makes a lot of sense to them, I think. So you have all these other manufacturers that are willing to be in racing and be in the sport and, and invest in teams. And, you know, I mean, MV's, you know, not the wealthiest of companies, but I know in talking to the people over there, they're like, man, if we could figure out how to come racing, we'd do it right now. You know, so it's just a transition for us, I think, in super sport. And it really is exciting to me to see what's going to happen because, Jim, what happens is very complicated with the FIM. So what they do is they take a motorcycle and they say, okay, can we electronically control this? It needs to be throttled by wire. It needs to have an ECU with so much stuff, whatever, whatever. They take an engine, they dyno it. They figure out how much horsepower it makes. Then they take the bike built. They put it in the wind tunnel. They figure out coefficient of drag and all this other stuff. And they figure out all, this, all these parameters and they put it into an algorithm. And the algorithm decides what you need to do to this motorcycle to make it competitive. I mean, how crazy is that? Right. Gar garbage in garbage out. If your programming logic doesn't successful, <laughs> what are you going to do? You're, you're going to screw right. it up royally. But so everything looks good. Now we won't know until it gets on the racetrack, but the way the rules are written, FIM and Moto America have the ability to, you know, um, to balance these bikes competitively. So they've got to be weight. Yeah. Whether that's weight, electronics, whatever they're going to do. So there, there has to be stumbling blocks, right? I mean, there has to be. It's not going to be like you're going to roll out bikes. Everything's going to be perfect. But I'll tell you what, Ducati's serious as hell about this thing. I mean, they've already gone to Daytona with Josh Aaron and tested. They flew over like something like 12 or 14 people from Italy 
you know, one of the, one of the mechan or the uh, engineers working on the electronics for Josh Heron's V2 was from MotoGP. He was like one of their top MotoGP guys. One of the mechanics was like from the world Superbike team. Like it it's, then they go and with Petrucci, as you've, I'm sure you've read, they go to do a world Superbike test and he has his Moto America specific motorcycle that is testing right alongside with world Superbike. That's an investment Ducati's making because that bike isn't identical. There's just one one major difference in the motor in the world superbike bike and the and the Moto America bike. Um, but the biggest difference is they're on American Dunlop tires and they're on VP fuel. And so Dunlop was over there, uh, brought over 24 tires that we race here in the US for Petrucci and Ducati to test so they can start looking at do we need to build swing arms? What are the 3D models that we need to for the bike for the electronics to work? What's the 3D model of the tire? What are the characteristics of it on the sidewall? What do we have to do, you know, to sorry. And then the fuel, what maps to build. I mean, it's a it's when you look at a commitment like that, naturally you say, well, yeah, Moto America's come it's made a comeback. You know, the problem is is that older fans like you and I go, yeah, but where's where's Suzuki's full factory effort? Where's Cowie's full factory effort? Where's Honda's full factory effort? You know? And it's like, yeah, I, at this point, I think we're kind of beyond that, you know. Yeah, totally. I'm for me, I'm super interested in seeing this just because of the different manufacturers with different um, cylinder configurations. So you're <laughs> gonna be able to close your eyes and you'll feel that Ducati go by. You'll hear that odd pulse of that Triumph because that, I've I've heard those motors from being at uh, Austin. Those things sound wicked. Wicked. Oh yeah, they're good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're good. I mean, and then, uh, you know, I'm sure Moto Guzzi, the Moto Guzzi 3 is going to be different again. And then you throw in an old Gixxer from back in the day for this, us nostalgic people. <laughs> and yeah. it sounds like that's a really cool way to go racing with it. it, it I, I applaud that. So I'm, I'm even more excited to go to races now than what I was previously. So it's, sounds fantastic in there and then continue on with that you have a really interesting bagger series with more people participating you have some legends come in you know ben bostrom climbs on a bike and you know you see like some of these people coming in it's very interesting class it's it, it brings in a totally different audience and it works you have the twins cup class which is i mean i, I think on the regular you're going to have somewhere like 45 riders entered in the twins cup class and then you have stock thousand which is a feeder class for superbike and you know what? What really drives Stock Thousand too is a, is a healthy um, contingency program put on by Honda, Suzuki, Kawasaki, Yamaha, BMW. You know, and so that really helps those privateers still get in the mix. And then those top level uh, riders in that class, you know, are invited to come do Superbike uh, as well. So they get more they get more track time, they get more experience. You know, the Superbikes we have now are full blown Superbikes. So can a Stock Thousand compete? Yeah, we go to Barber. You know what I mean? Uh, we've had a couple of people stick some noses up in there and all that kind of stuff, but for the most part, no, but then, you know, you have that battle within the battle, you know, if you know about it as a fan and you get to watch, you know, a Corey Alexander race against the Michael Gilbert race against the Travis Wyman or whatever in that class, you know, they're racing for first in stock thousand. And then all of a sudden an hour later, they're out in Superbike doing it again, but this time for, you know, seventh or eighth or ninth, you know? So there, there's a lot to be said about, about the racing and the rules packages and the way that they are right now. And for those people that are, you know, that are tech heads, Superbike still a Superbike in the, in the United States. You know, you you can look at that bike. You go to the you go to the attack pit and you look at that motorcycle and you're just going like, oh come on, 
you know, like, are you serious? And I got to ride that bike. Uh, we, we, after road America last year, I was riding around, I did Greg's ride of the races. So I rode a Ducati 15,000 miles last year, last summer. And I rode, I rode all around the United States. I live in North Carolina. And so I rode up and, you know, went over to road America. Then I went all the way over to the Ridge in Washington, down to Laguna and then all the way back home. And, uh, after road America, there was a, a test at Brainerd because we hadn't been to Brainerd, Minnesota. And I, I can't remember now, 17 years or something like that. It's a long, long, long time. It was a lot. Yeah. And so we went there and, um, <laughs> like I'm sitting around on day two, Jake Gagne had crashed and hurt his hand. So he got on a plane, went home and I had leathers and everything there. I was supposed to actually test a Westby bike, but it wasn't really coming together. So I was just kind of hanging out, waiting to finish my ride over to, to Washington state. And, uh, Richard Stamboli said, you want to ride the bike? I go, whose bike? He's like, Gagne's bike. I was like, what are you kidding me? Yeah. I want to ride the bike. And then my second question was, are you going to put some like dumb, dumb, slow guy map in this thing? You're going to take some power out of this thing. He was like, Nope, you're getting Gagne's bike. Totally. So I got to go out and I think I ended up only doing 10 laps on it. I was supposed to get more time, but it just kind of didn't work out. But what was interesting was that, um, their data guy, uh, couldn't be there because of COVID protocols. He's in Canada at the time. And, uh, I get off the bike and two seconds later, I get a phone call. He's like, let's, let's talk about your data. I was like, what? <laughs> he's like, yeah. I'm like, are you not in Nova Scotia right now? He's like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, this is your lean angle. This is your grip position. This is, you know, all that kind of stuff is pretty interesting. A lot of uh, fun though. That sounds really, that, that'd be like a dream <laughs> to be able to do that. So yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Hmm. So I think Moto America is definitely going to be something really to watch this year. So with the time that we got left, let's talk a little bit about MotoGP. All right. Get there. Let's do it. Well, actually, can we talk about Moto2 first? We can talk about anything you want. I got nothing but time. So it just depends on how long you want to edit this this podcast, you poor guy. <laughs> That's okay. I'm used to editing long ones. Me and Rich get rambly all the time, too. <laughs> so, so Bobier and Sean Dillon Kelly. Mm-hmm. What do you think they're going to be capable of doing in Moto2 this year? Well, I think Cameron Cameron's made a big step uh, from a mental standpoint at the end of last season. He's made a big step in understanding how to ride a, a, a Moto2 bike compared to a Superbike and what it really needs t- to go around. The biggest thing is when you go to a super bike, a super bike is, it's a street bike. You know what I mean? It's a street bike and it's, it's built up, you, you know, you, you just chuck 150 grand into it or whatever. And it's a super bike. So it's soft and it handles bumps. A moto two bike is a legit race frame. It's very stiff. It's totally different. The, the Dunlops that they race on over there are, I mean, they're only Dunlops by name. The, the Dunlop that owns Dunlop in the U S doesn't even own Dunlop that races moto GP. It's a totally different company. So they've gone a different direction in the tires. So it was a matter of a lot of things for Cameron. And a lot of it has to do with him rushing into the corner, not getting the corner finished, and then trying to use too much throttle on the way out and you don't have traction control. So I think Cameron made a big step. If you were watching live timing and scoring in in the last test that they had uh, in Portimao, before Cameron crashed on day two, he was right there in the top three, the top five. So Confidence-wise, I feel Cameron's there. He did boink his head in the test before. They had a test a couple, like the last week at Jerez, and he boinked his head, but he seemed better. But he said his last day of testing, he just wasn't, he wasn't putting the laps together. He wasn't riding right. He was just riding like like a donkey, kind of were his words. So I wouldn't put anything into the 
him finishing 19th on day three of the test. I think it was different. So I would say that Cameron Bobier, without question, has got a shot at a top five or even a top three season end finish because he knows how to do it. Can he contend for the championship? There's definitely a possibility. It really depends on what's going on. I mean, I think at this point, you have to look at Acosta and you're like, uh oh. So I'm not, I'm not having the banquet just yet, but in a way, I'm like, uh, okay. All right. So now we're racing for second, right? Well, that kid's incredible. He's incredible. I mean, he is special, you know? So I think Cameron easily, I can see him finishing top five. I can see him finishing on the podium as a regular on the podium this season. Sean Dillon Kelly is another story. You know, he has got, he's 19 years old. He's going, he's turning 20. I think he's, he's got time to learn. And, you know, um, Eton Butbul, who owns that team, recognizes in Sean Dillon Kelly, like, hey, I've got to get him back here now because it is a young man's game in Moto2. And I think that to put any expectation on Sean Dillon Kelly this season would be doing Sean Dillon Kelly a disservice because, and by the way, I call him Sean Dillon Kelly because that was his request. Okay. Some people have like beat us up about it. It's so funny. They're like, why do you keep calling him Sean Dillon Kelly? Because when I first met him, that is what he requested. And that's the kind of commentator I am, you know, like, Hey, if you want to be called that, that's, you know, unless it's an obscenity, I don't really care. So I think that if SDK can break into the top 10, a couple of times, I think it would be quite an accomplishment. Top 15, I think might be where he lives for the first bit of the season but I really don't want to put too much on him because he could surprise us all and just go. And he has talent and he has speed. And could he be in the mix at one of the races? Yeah. Could he figure out how to make a step halfway through the season? And we could find him in the top five racing with, you know, Aaron Kinnett and Cameron and, and Fernandez and all those guys that are going to be up front. Yeah, I think so. But I think the other American we have to look at is Joe Roberts. You know, he's almost like the forgotten American. Joe had great testing the last five days of, of testing. He's fast. The Italian trans team that he's on is really good. You know, obviously they won the world championship two years ago. So I think he's another one, you know, to look out for. And I think, I think American fans are going to have a lot to cheer for inside of moto two this year. That, that's great. I, I want to see either Joe or cam on the podium. Well, I'll call it quasi consistently. I'd love to see the American stand on the top step because I want to hear the Star Spangled Banner bounce over the top step. Mm-hmm. It's just been it's been too long, way too long. Um, a question about Joe Roberts. I have opined with Rich on this show that Joe is a moody rider, and eighty percent of Joe's problem is between his ears. Would you agree? Disagree? Because it seems like he gets down and he stays down and he can't fight his way back up 90% of racing is mental. Sure. That's a quote that Colin Edwards told me in 1996. I'll never forget it. 10% is the bike. 90% is mental. So every rider has his things. Trust me. Dealing with, (laughs) dealing with the people that I've dealt with in 26 years, you have to know, if you're a pit reporter, especially, you have to know who you're dealing with, how their mood swings are. You have to read the tea leaves. You really do. I would say that for Joe, for Joe, 
like most racers, if he can catch a whiff of confidence, he starts to ride on a high. You know what I mean? It's he's a surfer. He's very Bostrom like, you know, he's got a very free attitude. He's got a lot of confidence in himself. He understands it. But in MotoGP, in the paddock in general, things are so much different than they are in the United States. They just don't compare. They look at riders in a different way. They look at results in a different way, you know, and, and it's, it's just different. So I think for Joe, it really kind of depends on who he has around him. That's going to really boost him up when times get hard. But I wouldn't say that Joe Roberts is any different from any other racer in terms of like riding the confidence, you know, people can get too reliant on the people around them to boost them up and they can get too reliant on being independent, not caring what anyone else thinks. And I think that when you look at, you know, even Mark Marquez, right. I mean, Mark's come out recently and just said, look, I, I thought it was over for me. I, I just, this last injury has really beaten me up. And there was a low point when I thought retirement's, you know, an option and, you know, you just don't know with riders. It just totally depends. And, you know, you heard Mark Marquez say the first day when they were at Mandalika, I think it was Mandalika. Yeah. And he was like, well, that, that T I think it was the fourth split or the third split. He's like, ah, that's really fast sweeping corner. I, I don't really like that. That's a red flag for me. I'm going like, okay. So the real fast stuff where he's had problems, it's now embedded in his brain. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you go to Luca Marini. He's like, Oh my God, that section is the greatest ever. And you're going, yeah, right. Because you don't have that experience or that trauma there, you know? So everybody kind of rides their waves up and down, up and down. I don't think Joe's any more or less, you know what I mean? Like more of a head case or less of a head case than some there are. And I could name some names of people that do that. I think it's, I think it's a function of a lot of things that surround the team that get him comfortable and that confidence. I think if anything Joe's guilty of is that the high highs are really high and the low lows are really low where a guy like Cameron Bobier has the ability at his age. Now he didn't have it when he was teammates with Mark Marquez and, and, you know, in one twenty five GP, but now Cameron has it where the highs are high and the lows aren't that low. So to, for Cameron to be able to ride in the middle, even when he was throwing it down the road, as much as he did last year, he's throwing it down the road and testing. You know, when I talked to him two days ago when we were texting back and forth, He's good. He knows he can run with the, with the riders up front, even though he's been crashing and he needs to figure it out. Like every other rider, he's good. Joe has been in a situation where since he got to moto two, he's been on his back foot. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's hard. It's hard to say if he's streaky or whatever, but yeah, it's different. No, that's great insight because I don't know these guys from Adam. I can only see what I see on a TV screen I can only see what I think I see from what I remember riding bikes. And you're, mm-hmm. that's a great way to put it. There's a wave. And if you can ride that wave of confidence, it's fantastic. If you don't have it and you're, something's going on, you have a hard time getting yourself back out of it. You got to figure out how to get – I always called it mentally strong. Uh, you know, When I was racing, it was always if we had a bad race, we would talk about that race in the van on the way home. What mistakes did we make? And it was always a we. It was always me and dad. So, you know, maybe dad made a step. <laughs> you know, dad, dad owned up to not knowing everything about setting up a motorcycle. I owned up to not knowing that I had all the right lines on the racetrack and whatnot. And, we would, and then that was it. That was the last thing we would talk about it. Because we didn't want to dwell on what we were wrong. We were going to change what we did and move on. So I completely get where you are with that one. And I appreciate the insight. 
Well, the other thing to consider too is what was at stake when you were racing and what's at oh, stake yeah. for Joe Roberts? Oh yeah. Remember he got an offer to go ride the factory Aprilia bike and turned it down. Yeah. I, right? I, like, I, I, that one puzzles me, but I, cause I was like, go. Cause how many people, there are 24 MotoGP bikes that are in this world and you have an offer to go ride one of them, any of them. And that's, I guess, too much fanboy coming from me. Like go do it. <laughs> What Joe understood about himself was, I need another year in Moto2, okay? I need another year in Moto2, and if I do the job that I'm capable of doing, I will have another offer. Unfortunately, you know, and the other thing, too, for Joe is he, he had just made a commitment to Taltrans. You know, he just made it, just signed the contract. And to really back that out, that's not Joe, that's not the Joe Roberts I know. So that was a consideration. There's a lot of things that people don't realize that's going on in someone's life that he had to consider. Plus, at, in that moment, the Aprilia was not the best bike. It was the it was the worst bike in the paddock at that moment in time. You know, we didn't know that they were going to have so much development over the offseason and Aleish was going to be able to run up front early on and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, the only people that knew that probably were Bradley Smith at the time because he'd just done developing the bike and, you know, Salvadori. And then, you know, Aleish kind of knew something was coming. But for the most part, I mean... That, that was a difficult thing because I understand where you're coming from 100%. I mean, on paper, it makes sense. Dude, you get one of, at the time, actually, it was only 22 bikes. So you get one of 22 bikes, like, why aren't you taking it? You know, but the same thing, if you ask Cameron Bobier about his time in 125 GP, he'll tell you, I needed one more year in CEV. I needed one more year at the at the um, MotoGP Rookies Academy or whatever that that was being run at the time. He goes, I went one year too early and I just mentally, I just could not handle what was going on. You, you show up in a team and Mark Marquez isn't Mark Marquez. Once he got to Repsol Honda, Mark Marquez has been Mark Marquez since he was in CEV. There've been people latched onto him and money behind him. And people knew he was a winner, just like Pedro Acosta. You're witnessing now, same type of situation. Can you imagine you're in, you're, you're 19 years old. You've done Red Bull rookies cup. You, you take a year off more or less out of GP. You're in this the academy thing. And then you go do some CEV races and they go, guess what? You're now teamed in 125 with Mark Marquez. I mean, it was rough, but I still kill him about it, by the way, because if you get the MotoGP video game from that year, yeah, the first like three riders are the worst riders in the game. Like you start off with the worst riders and then you race and you build points and then you can upgrade rider, upgrade the bike. Okay. One of the three riders you had to pick was Cameron. <laughs> Like from MotoGP 2009. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you think, because um, you were saying, you know, how Cam needs the extra year, Joe needs that extra year. Do you think Acosta needed another year in Moto3? Apparently not. Yeah. Okay. Dumb question. I actually, I actually would, I would almost argue that probably Acosta didn't even need a year in Moto2. That he could have Jack Millered the thing and gone right from Moto3 to Moto MotoGP. Um and I think that he would have picked it up really. He's that talented. I have a theory that why of why he didn't do that. Go Be for it. Because KTM needed a year to figure the MotoGP bike out. Of Oliveira and Bender are going to sort that bike out to where it's going to be damn close, and Acosta is going to be that last piece that they need to push them over the top. Yeah, I think part of that's right. I do, but um, I also think that. 
I mean, you've already seen silly season start in MotoGP. Oh yeah, Bagnaia already that. resigned, right? He already resigned. There are a ton of contracts that are up this year. I mean, a ton. That's the other thing that's at stake for Cameron Bobier. Cameron Bobier can perform well this year. I think in the top five, in the top three, consistently, he's gone. He'll go to MotoGP. Wow. Okay. I mean, cool. Dorna, Dorna wants an American so bad in MotoGP, and they are dying for it. I mean, I think, and you know, with all these contracts being up, no, I know that for a fact. Okay. Okay. Because my, again, you have way more insider information than myself, but I always get this impression that the European teams look at an American rider and are like, nah. No, no, they do. They, they definitely do. But but that's not Dorna. Dorna is not team team. Right. Right. So the thing is Dorna as an organization understands that if you're going to go to the market that sells more, thousand cc motorcycles than than half the world combined right i think it's like 50 percent of the thousands are sold here and that's the bikes that basically you race right i mean no one in the u.s by and large no one in the u.s is going to root for people in MotoGP unless there's an american i mean we are the stars and stripes right we are sure. american pride so it helps a lot there are plenty of MotoGP fans here but there are more MotoGP fans when there's American racing and there's American racing up front. And Dorna does have influence. They, you know, they, they can flex their muscle and, and they can work with teams and try to get somebody on there, you know, whether that's money or influence or whatever it is. So Dorna in general would love to see an American. I mean, who wouldn't want to see an American in MotoGP? You know, America's, America's still, even in the turmoil that this, this world is in and politics and all that garbage, there's still a value there you know, to have an American in the series. And that's why at right now having three Americans in MotoGP, I mean, we got, we got a one in three chance, right. Of getting one person to ride next year. I take theoretically. Those odds. Yeah. I take know? those odds. Right. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, Bobier's, you know, for GP, he's definitely long in the tooth. Yeah. But Cameron does, he has some, some value, you know, he's won races in front of the MotoGP paddock before they know him, you know, he's friends with, the riders there before he even got there, he's well-respected as a racer. What he did in 2020 in Moto America was recognized, you know? I mean, they knew the amount of track records he broke and, you know, the amount of races that he won and everything else. And they were happy to have, they are happy to have him in and, and all the Americans in, you know? So, and all of them bring something different, you know, to the table. Cameron Bobier brings that California, you know, cool guy attitude who can, you know, race and really be aggressive and do all that stuff. Joe Roberts, fast California surfer guy. You know what I mean? L lacks attitude. Sean Dylan Kelly, good looking, determined, speaks fluent Spanish, which is really popular in an organization like Dorna. And of course, you know, how big is MotoGP in Spain? There are so many things that these three riders bring. Yeah, it's huge, right? So there are, there are different elements that you can get off of the bike that make a difference for all three of these riders and all three are very promotable and, uh, and would, would make an impact once they go into GP, I think. Okay. That, that makes me upbeat for it. You know, that, that Dorna sees it that way. Cause I kind of don't see it that way, but I love the insight, you know, whatever you can glean from anyone, you know, you take it and you listen to it. I've postulated a theory that Quattraro is definitely going to leave the Yamaha and that, that some people are saying, oh, he's going to go get on the Honda and be next to Marquez. And I'm like, nah, Quattraro's got the wrong passport. Because I think Repsol wants two Spanish riders, and I think they will flex their muscle to do it. 
Uh, I mean, Quateraro grew up in Spain, dude. You know what I mean? Like he's French by passport. I understand that, but I mean, his Spanish is impeccable and he grew up his whole career racing in Spain. And, and I think that, um, I think if you're marketable inside of Spain, that Repsol wouldn't have a problem with it. I, I know that that's been a talking point for years with people in Repsol and all that kind of stuff. And it is, you know, you get off a plane in Spain and you, you know, you look around and it's like, you know, when Telefonica was in, you'd see Sete Gibernau and a Telefonica flag. And you see this person on a rep, you know, Danny Pedroza on a Repsol flag. And I mean, you know, MotoGP is big in Spain. I mean, it's the, I think it's their biggest sport, but I don't think that's something that really, that's going to hold them back. You know, if, if, Honda looked at Fabio Quattararo and said, this is the guy that could ride our bike. And this is the guy to replace Mark Marquez. Honda would go get him. You know, I'm not sure what's going to happen. You know, Yamaha has got a huge decision to make. The only thing is, you know, I I don't even know if, if it's too late, if their engines are frozen now, if they've chosen the engines for the year, the configuration. Yeah. They have to freeze after the Mandalika test. They had to freeze. Right. So, I mean, they're stuck. The only thing that Yamaha can do now is aerodynamics. What aerodynamics package are they going to roll out at Doha that they're going to have that's going to give them a little bit more top speed? You know, the, the, the downforce to, to top speed conundrum. So with Quattararo, he's been rumored to go to Aprilia. You know, someone someone's sent me a message about that or whatever. I, I just don't know. Um, I think that Honda's in a position now where they're just going to have to wait and see. You know, obviously... People have already linked Pedro Acosta to to Repsol Honda next year. You know, it's that who, what phenom are we going to get to replace Mark Marquez? I think what people are, are are not recognizing is that Honda has had the attitude for years. HRC has had the attitude for years that it's the bike, not the rider, right? And if they have one rider winning, they're they're fine. If they're winning championships, who cares if nobody else can ride their bike? I mean, it was the driving force of what led Valentino Rossi to leave HRC. Because HRC said it was the bike. Valentino said, no, it's me. HRC said, no, man, it's our engineering. And then Valentino went on a Yamaha and kicked the shit out of him, right? Yeah. And one of the greatest seasons ever to have done it. Yeah. It was amazing. It was incredible. Yeah. I think that with the clean sheet of paper redesign that Honda went through with their MotoGP bike this year, and the fact that Marquez has been gone so long, and they were so far off the pace, that they were kind of forced to listen to the other riders saying, I can't get this bike into a corner. It, I can't. All those crashes are on the front, right? It's just front end, front end, front end. So can you make this bike more rideable, please? And Honda turned around and listened. And what it's going to do is it's going to allow Mark Marquez to be as creative on the motorcycle and as adventurous and without the risk that he's had to take all these years. I mean, how many spectacular front-end crashes do we see Mark Marquez save? But it always runs out, Jim. That luck always runs out. And the problem is, is when it does, and I could list a number of riders, right, that have gone through this in their career, unstoppable, unbeatable, and then they get to a point where luck or, I don't know, that 0.001% runs out and they start getting hurt and then they start realizing they're human and then they start looking like wait a second do i want to walk if i ever have kids do i want to retire and be able to water ski or you know what i mean and as soon as those thoughts creep in the career starts to starts to slide i don't think marquez is there i think he's one of the most mentally strong riders in the paddock he's very intelligent with the way he approaches racing and races 
but we'll have to see if this redesign allows Mark to go at a speed of which he doesn't have to take as much risk as he used to, then you're going to see Mark win a lot of races this year, but they've got it. They've got to figure some stuff out still. Yep. You know? I, I think they have done that because they moved the, the bias to the rear and it, you can see it sort of in the chassis where the position of the bike is swing arm pivot, etc. And there's so many pictures that came through uh, from Mandalika, especially of Marquez riding the front end in with the back end that six to eight inches off the ground, which you did not see him do since maybe 2014-ish, wherever the last year the Bridgestone was. So if you've given him a bike that he's that confident on the front now to go in, to break that late, that deep, and then that bike has horsepower to go with it, he's it's almost like the unstoppable the unstoppable force, which we need to have because we've got an armada of Ducatis that are just absolutely mind-blowing oh fast. Oh, my God. <laughs> right? Where are they getting the budget to build all these current bikes, too? It's crazy. Yeah. The and then all the is... wizardry that they figured out that go on those bikes and et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to ask you your opinion on this. Are you for or against all the winglets and aerodynamics that have sprouted out and shape-shifting bikes and everything crazy that Ducati has done? In a nutshell, are you for it, against it? How do you How do you see it? I'm I'm for aerodynamics because um, there is no perfect solution for aerodynamics. You know what I mean? Like sure. coming from cycling and stuff, you know, when you get to certain wind conditions, crosswinds and stuff, there's always going to be a deficit associated. So, you know, you can say, oh, my God, look at how much downforce I have. Well, great. Now you're slowing the bike down. Right. So there's got to be a balance, but there's always going to be a deficit. What I'm not a fan of is this is the squatting devices coming out of a corner. I'm not a fan at all. I, I just think that, you know. I mean, look, the, you know, the one, the argument to be made is, and Jack Miller admitted that he did this, I think the last race of the year, right? Or second to last race of the year, you forget to hit the button and all of a sudden the bike wants to go to the moon. I mean, there's a couple of things that MotoGP fans might not be aware of. And I certainly know that any other motorcycle or car fan doesn't realize MotoGP bikes are built solely around the tires. Everything starts with the tires, number one. And number two is how do we prevent this motorcycle from wheelieing? That's why you see squat devices. That's why you see aerodynamics, all that kind of stuff. There is the, you know, the added advantage to aero about dirty air and stuff. But you notice how people were talking about that at the beginning of aero. Now that everyone has aero, nobody's talking about dirty air anymore. Well, just because everybody has it, doesn't talk about it, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You know, the buffet you get, but everybody's just kind of dealing with it now. So I'm okay with aero. I think it, it could have an application on the street, whether it's even, a, even as a marketing tool, making this bike looks cool. You know, I mean, the Aprilia looks a little ridiculous, you know, with the big mustache and stuff like that. But I still love the overall look of, of an Aprilia. My biggest thing is, is that, you know, these MotoGP bikes are getting to the point, like especially Ducati, where it just doesn't look like a motorcycle anymore. I mean, it looks like you just ride some electronic device um, and the squatting stuff is I, I just I don't I don't like it. I understand it, but I just nah. Yeah, I, I'm I'm against whole shot devices, squatting bikes, that whole nine yards as much as the engineer in me loves that i don't want it because i want to see that control made via the right wrist and you know how to ride out of the corner that way the arrow i don't like that part of it either because it doesn't look like a motorcycle that i would recognize you know i'm you know to me the old 916 ducati is one of the most gorgeous motorcycles that's ever been made jim Probably. jim jim come on there were people your age in 1996 that looked at a GSXR and were like, this is outrageous. 
Look at the size of that tail set. It's aerodynamic. Let me tell you something. A super bike had wide bars and an engine that floated in a frame. Like I totally get what you're saying. My view is, is what innovations can MotoGP have that makes its way to the street that makes sense for the manufacturer? And I find it really difficult to think that a street bike needs a squatting device. Agreed. Does a street bike, does a street bike need aero? No, it shouldn't need aero. But if you're going to build a bike like the Penagali, right? It can translate to racing. It can grant translate to track days. It can translate to club racing. I, I get all that bit. But are you going to tell me that you're going to build a squat device and you're going to put it on a stock Penagali for what reason? You know, that's kind of I guess the the line that I draw on innovation is if it doesn't make sense for a manufacturer to develop it to make a profit off of it, then what what use does it have in racing? Because that's what drives these manufacturers ultimately is money. Of course, it's money. You can hear the ready to race thing from KTM and yeah, they're ready to race. I understand that. And here in the US, that company has more motorcycle riders than any other motorcycle company that I know of. That's a, that's a big company. I don't know how many Royal Enfield has, you know what I mean? But they, they definitely are passionate about it. But it's like, how far are we going to go that doesn't make any sense to bring to market. So Ducati spending all this money to develop the squatting device to what end? Where's it going? You know, if I'm Audi, I'm going, all right, you've spent a lot of our money. Where's this thing going? Now I get it. Ducati needs a championship. They're going to look at the rule book and they have some of the smartest people ever, ever. You know, it's like, I love how people will shit all over Bill Belichick because he looks at the rule book and he goes, okay, let's try this and try that. But yet in racing, people are applauded, you know, for doing that. You know, it's like, man, I love Ducati for doing that. I'm just not a fan of squatting devices or they're, they're calling them shapeshifters now. Uh, launch devices. I'm okay with that. You know I mean? People have it in stick cars on the street. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I mean, I, I get all that part. Trash control, launch control, wheelie control, high side control, all stuff that translates to street bike makes it safer. The problem is with all these electronics and other things, it just makes the rider, they don't have to train as much. They don't have to think about riding as much. And that's the part that gets me a little bit as an old guy, you know, who's, who taught at Jason Pridmore star school. I mean, I got on Gagne's bike. I went like this, Jim, I let the clutch out to start the bike. I never had to grab the clutch till I was done till I pulled in. You don't have to do anything. You don't need it. Electronics take care of all that. Slipper clutches take care of all that. You know, when I, when you, when I first started road racing, you had to buy a steering damper for your street bike. They didn't come with them yet. Why? Because people slide too far back in the seat and they hold onto the bars too tight. The front end gets light because the rear end squats and people hold on and it causes tank slappers. So, right. Yeah. You gotta lose, you gotta learn to ride loose. Manufacturers went, all right, well, people are too stupid. So we're going to put steering dampers on. Oh, wait a second. They can't downshift very well. So we're going to put slipper clutches on. If you look at the evolution of a bike since the 90s, everything has been about the mistakes that riders make and how can we fix them. And that's where electronics came in. I think a lot of these guys that get hurt on their dirt bikes, brake collarbones and whatnot, is because they're used to something that's got a bunch of electronic wizardry to keep them on the straight and narrow. And they just sort of kind of forget and get throttle happy and throw it away. 
<laughs> I totally see what you're saying. I don't think so, but I, I, I totally see where you would draw that parallel hundred percent, but it's not that, I mean, like guys like Marquez and stuff like that, that they, they, there is a certain switch that goes on in your brain. When you get on a dirt bike, you know, it, it's, you know, it's, it's like saying it, it has five speeds and they're always trying to find six because they have a six on a MotoGP bike. It's not like that. I just think that mistakes are made. You know, when people wad themselves up and it sucks, but it happens. I am going to end wind here with I got one question left for you, Greg. And oh this boy. one comes from this one comes from um my co-host Rich. He created this question. I miss you, Rich, by the way. I miss you. I don't know you, but I don't understand why. Just because it's two o'clock in the morning in the UK, you can't be on this call. So his he's so full credit to Rich for coming up with this question. And he's ended his interviews with this, so I'm gonna ask you this. You can pick any rider from any time period, any bike from any time period, in any track. What do you pick? What do you mean? So, okay, so like as, as an example. Like to hang out with or ride? No, or, to, you see, know what I mean? to see, you, you are standing at a racetrack and you get to watch this happen. Yeah. You get to watch this rider. So like, um, he one of the guys that Richard interviewed said, oh, I would, I would take Mark Marquez on his RCV 211 around Codwell Park. Uh, Gregory Haynes was on the show, and he he had Marquez uh, around one of the tracks there. I can't remember. You know, me, I've thought about it, and I said I want to see Marquez on Ricky Graham's '93 RS750 Honda Dirt Tracker at the Mile at Springfield. You see him? See where? See where we're going with that one? You all are high, Mark Marquez. Who gives a shit? <laughs> I want to see Nikki Hayden. Okay, okay. On his fine. on his RC211V. Going around Pikes Peak International oh. Raceway. Okay. Mostly left-hand corners there. That's that was right. a fifth. That was a fifty-two second lap or something like that on a superbike at Pikes Peak when we were doing superbike. And Pegram won a race there. Like uh, Eric Bostrom was nearly undefeated there. Like that is a let. Oh my God! I can't even imagine. I mean, you'd have to put Nikki Hayden on that track on a on the GP bike that he won the world championship on, right? Mm -hmm. So before before electronics, was that the 11 V that he won the yeah, world? Yeah, 11 V. Yeah, the 990. Yeah, dude, with hardly any electronics on that thing. Are you kidding me? Oh my god! I mean, he would. That dude would have burned through a set of tires every six laps. Ah, oh, you people with Mark Marquez. Who cares? Nikki Hayden on a 211 V at Pikes Peak. That is. Yeah, that'd be that would have been bitching, or or. You know what else? No, you know, I got a second one. Oh, fine, Kenny guy. Roberts. Kenny Roberts oh. on a 211B at Pikes Peak. <laughs> that I would love to see. That's... I don't care if Kenny's at 60. He's yeah. so good on a motorcycle. But Kenny Roberts at his prime. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? It, I happened to be at the Indy Mile when they were racing in Indianapolis and Roberts got on the old TZ. TZ you were there? You, I, I was, was there, there too, I was too. there, man. That was How one of the coolest that? things ever. It was sick. You're like, you're like, I'm sorry. Have you? How long has it been since you've ridden a motorcycle? Four minutes ago. Yeah, that guy's unreal. He, co unreal. he 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 takes off and you think he's just gonna kind of put it around. He turns around, comes right back, and he looks at Bobby Lemon like, "You gonna get me a flag?" And Bobby Lemon just throws a flag, and he, Roberts just dumps the clutch, and it was like, we all got transported back to 1972 when Roberts rode around the hay bales to win the race over Gene Romero. It's like, whoa. All right, this is what I want to see. Okay, okay. Kenny Roberts, Nikki Hayden, mm. and Anthony Gobert. Oh, all racing, all racing 211 Vs 
on Mich on Michelin's, I guess, right? He won on Michelin's. Yeah, uh, around around Pikes Peak. That would be awesome. And, and who would win that race? Oh God. Part of me says Roberts only because he'd knock Gobert off in the first turn. Because <laughs> you yeah. knew he'd do something crazy like that, right? Oh, that's amazing. That's that's wild. I don't know why Pikes Peak is such a garbage track, but it's just left. You go left, then you go left, then you come off the back straightaway, you go left, then you go right, then you go left, right, left, left, left. Oh my God. <laughs> every dirt track's dream, every, every dirt, dirt tracker's track dream. dream. Like Ben oh, Bostrom, yeah. when he won at uh, Mazzano when it went the other way, right? She kind of, the lady says, well, Ben, you got your first superbike, world superbike win. How, how was it? How come? He says, ben says something to me. Well, it goes left. What do you mean, Ben? It goes left. <laughs> Goes left. Goes left. I mean, you could say that too for like Laguna would be good to do those three racing in their prime on a GP bike. Those are, you know, like you're saying that that track going the other way where Ben, yeah. I mean, left. <laughs> what a question. Yeah. Tip of the cap. Tip of the cap to that question. Tip of the cap to Rich. I'm going to have, I'll be answering that question like all year. Like I'll be in the booth. I'll just look at Jason and go, no, no, no. I got it. I got it. Jamie hacking <laughs> on a stock thousand. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> oh. Here's what I guarantee you I won't say, Jim. Okay. Jason Pridmore on any motorcycle. I could care less. <laughs> I could care less. I saw him race almost every race except for World Endurance. I don't okay. care. I think that might have been I think that might have been why I never saw never said Nikki because I watched him so much growing up. It it just, you know, anyway, that's that. But dude, Greg, if you watched him, if you watched that dude. On a Formula Extreme bike, the year before he got on a super bike, so I think it was like 2000 or something like that, or 99 or something, when he was with teammates with Curtis Roberts, I was on the track with Nick, getting lapped by him. And if you watch the control that he had with that CBR, I don't remember what the bike was, a 929, 959 maybe back yeah, then, yeah, whatever. Built by Arian, or Arian punched it out or whatever. I don't remember. Fast and not an electronic device in sight. Nope. And you watch that throttle control, and you were just like, "Come on, man, really?" I'm like mid corner. Still at lean angle, getting ready to get on the gas. The dude is upright, 100% gas, sliding at 12 degrees, getting away from me. And I'm going like, yeah, I suck at this. I got to find another job. <laughs> Good times. Jim, I had tons of fun. Uh, I really appreciate you. you listening to all of my garbage. And everyone out there who's listening to this podcast, thank you so much for, for downloading it. And um, if you want to. You, you like podcasts, check out the Grace Garage Pod with co-host Jason Pridmore, available on all platforms. Let's look at I'm doing your job for you. Um, Jason appreciates it a lot. He doesn't have to do anything, Jim. I just do everything on the podcast. He, he talks for an hour. Hey, G-Dub, G-Dub, what do you think if we do a, a MotoGP podcast and a World Superbike podcast and a Moto America podcast? It's not extra work, bro. It's just talking more. I'm like, I'm hanging up the phone right now. You edit it, you post it, you know what I mean? You do the rundown, you jerk off. I love him. My boy. Oh, Greg, I appreciate the time. That's fascinating. Um, love it. I I, I hope maybe like mid-season, maybe I, we could hook back up again, kind of review something like 100%. that. 100%. Okay, yeah, yeah. great. If I have some free time, I'd love to come back on. And sure. I mean, this will be the least downloaded podcast of your whole thing. So we'll pace ourselves and we'll see how it goes. All right. I appreciate it very much, Greg. And uh, hopefully we'll have a good Moto America season and a great Moto GP season as well. And World Superbike. And we'll root the Americans on to victory. 